Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 19th, 2010. Big stuff here going on at Fighting for the Faith. Today we're going to take a divergent uh, divergence. We're going a different route. We're taking a detour. We're not doing purpose-driven stuff today. We're going to talk about the emergent church. Well, kind of. We're going to do a debrief with my interview. Uh, well, my interview on Doug Patch's radio program today. Talk about what's coming up later this week. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And I am not exempt from this exercise. That's right. Uh, in fact, you get higher marks on your Fighting for the Faith homework when you do compare what I say in the name of God to the Word of God and uh, make sure and test what I'm saying to make sure that it jives with what Scripture actually teaches. That's part of what being discerning is all about. That means you need to be discerning what I'm saying too. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got to tell you, this is a big week. Last week was a huge week. This is a big week at Fighting for the Faith. And I uh, want to tell you what's what we're going to be doing today. On Sunday, I appeared on Doug Paget's radio program. Doug Paget is uh, one of the major uh, figures in the uh, what's come to be known as the emergent church movement. And uh, there is a difference between what is emergent now and what was uh, originally called the emerging church. I have been spending a lot of time... Uh, really digging into the roots of of what is the emerging movement how did it come about and uh, and and so i have a i have a different perspective on things now and in fact on thursday's edition of fighting for the faith doug paget is going to be my guest on the program and the purpose of that interview is to clear up a lot of the noise that's probably the best way of putting it uh, regarding how the emerging church came about. I mean, if you read what some people are writing, you would think that the emerging church movement started off as, you know, that there was, that somewhere in the Council for Foreign Relations in the Bilderberg Group, that there was a smoke-filled room, and out of that room came a plan, and that plan was designed to take over the church. <laughs> no, that's not how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Uh, not at all. In fact, I, on Saturday, I spent, uh, oh man, at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half on the phone with Doug Paget, And he was telling me the entire story of, of, of how the emerging church came about. And it's a fascinating story. And the truth is far more interesting than conspiracy theories. And so uh, on Thursday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, Doug Paget is going to come on the radio program. And it's not, let me repeat this. It's not going to be a theological conversation. Okay, there is one thing and one thing only that I want to talk about with uh, Doug Paget on on Thursday, and that's him telling the story of how the emerging church came about. I got to tell you, I've been interviewing a lot of people who've been involved in the emerging church movement in the early days uh, via email and other and other means, Twitter, Facebook, and all everybody points the finger at Doug Paget as the guy who really was the was at the hub of this thing who was the one who recruited a lot of people to come to the table uh, to engage in and participate in this emerging conversation and in fact when you know when you hear the story my goal is at the end of it you'll actually understand uh who started it how it fit into the greater network that was uh, the one incubating it um, how things turned out differently than the group than the group that incubated it had expected, and how that led to the formation of Emergent Village and all that type of stuff. Because when you really know the true story, it, you realize, okay, this is a far more interesting thing, and uh, then you can continue. You basically you can then engage in what I consider to be informed in conversation with emergence with the emerging people about what really what this thing is and what it's all about. And so I'm very excited for Thursday's program, and uh, and I hope that it'll go a long way towards clearing up a lot of the, let's say, more wilder interpretations of how this thing came about. And uh, and so uh, stay tuned for Thursday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's going to be fantastic. Now, on today's edition, we're going to do two things. Uh, it's not a Friday light, but we're going to focus in on two things. One, we're going to do a debrief of my my radio interview on Doug Paget's program, and um, I'm excited about it for a few reasons. Uh, number one, the more I talk with Doug, the more I consider him to be a friend. Uh, Doug Paget has been nothing but uh, generous and kind and helpful uh, to me in in helping me find the answers that I'm looking for about uh about the emergent movement and uh and this is a guy that i've got his phone number on my cell phone and i could call him anytime i have a question and he never hesitates to take my call now doug and i have actually butted heads and uh you know it, so our let's just say our friendship is is marked with times where we've actually locked horns that's in fact that's how we started our friendship off, if you would. Uh, that being the case, I you know I I, I I want you to hear that I have the utmost respect for him. I disagree with him theologically, okay. And um and the nice thing I liked about this interview is that um it gave me the opportunity to clarify some things for him, and it showed me where there's for lack of a better way of putting it some um, lack of understanding in his understanding of where I'm coming from. And I'm hoping that uh, this will continue a greater conversation so that, uh, that, you know, that we, can, we can really hammer these things out. I saw his uh, blog post that he put up yesterday. Uh, prior to him putting it out, he actually sent it to me ahead of time and, and, and wanted to make sure that, I was cor- that he had correctly uh, got the gist of what it is that I was saying. And I told him that he, that, that was perfectly fine. And, and I like the fact that right now, 
uh, Doug and I are, are at the point where we respectfully disagree with each other theologically. This is a huge, huge improvement in the conversation. I would rather sit across the table with someone that I disagree with theologically and have reasons and can identify the focus of where the conversation should move forward so that we can continue and so that I can continue to give a a sound seasoned defense for the Christian faith and what I believe to be biblical orthodoxy. Now, Doug is equally impassioned and he believes that he has the truth. And this is great. This is a good place to be. And so I'm excited for where we're at. And I'm hoping that we can continue moving the conversation forward. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to deconstruct my interview with Doug Paget. And I'm not, you'll notice that I'm not taking out the lightsaber today and, and lopping off his head. That's, I don't consider that to be a, a, a beneficial thing at this point because the way the conversation is going. Although there are times when it's good to lop somebody's head off with a, with a flaming sword. Just, you know, I want to make sure you understand that. But, uh, no, I, 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 again, I'm encouraged by where we're heading. I'm encouraged by where the conversation is, and I'm encouraged by the forward momentum that we have. And I don't want to bring that to a halt. In fact, uh, I'm working on a blog piece that I hope to have out by the end of the week that uh, will will answer some of the things that Doug brought up in his blog piece so that you know he can further see and understand why it is that some people call him heretics, which, by the way... Um, so that you know, uh, before I start getting into the uh, the, uh, the program proper, uh, I want to talk about what my goals were. Oh, by the way, uh, second thing we're going to do today is I'm going to be playing a lecture by Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog entitled A Primer on Postmodernism, which I think is absolutely imperative to get into the public record at this point because there's certain concepts that uh, Phil talks about as it refers to pre-modernity that I subscribe to, and he does a fine job of actually laying those out that I think it's important because I think one of the reasons why uh, there uh, one of the reasons why Doug doesn't exactly understand why people call him heretics is because I don't think he has an accurate uh, understanding of pre-modernity and uh, and what and and what that means. So uh, we'll talk about that because I consider myself epistemologically and theologically to be, pre-modern, not modern or postmodern. So, And Phil Johnson does a fine job. So that's going to be the second part of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, before I get into uh, playing the uh, the interview itself on Doug Padgett's radio program, I want to tell you what my goals were. Okay, Number one, uh, I wanted to respectfully answer Doug's question. And you're thinking, okay. I want everybody to know Doug Padgett did not t-bone me he did not blindside me he did not set me up uh and try to trick me okay with uh, those quotes that he read uh you know regarding those people who called him a who call him a heretic and were saying those things about him in fact prior to going on the program he emailed me several of those comments and asked if I would be willing to you know, help him understand why people are calling him a heretic. And so I was fully aware of, of the comments. And I, my goal, one of the things that one of my goals was to respectfully answer the question, why people call Doug Padgett a heretic. Okay. And a lot of you are saying, well, that's because he is. Well, yeah, I understand that. But you, you see, it's not just it, just answering the question, well, the reason why the people call you a heretic is because you are, doesn't help him understand 
the answer to the question, nor does it help his audience. And the second thing, I, this, my second goal was to be able to preach the gospel uh, with, uh, to Doug's audience with keeping in mind who Doug's, uh, Doug's audience is. The radio station that, uh, that Doug's radio program airs on is a progressive uh, radio station. It, that's how it labels itself. I mean, and if, and if you listen to the commercials that are on the, that are on the station, you, you you can tell that they have a completely different political and social agenda than conservative radio uh, stations. And so, that being the case, it's always important if you're going to uh, be in dialogue with somebody to understand the, the culture that they that that they're working in. And so. Uh, that being the case, having been to emergent conferences, having spoken with emergent people, having spoke, uh, having spent time in conversation uh, with the with neoliberals and progressives, um, I have a, a a far better understanding now of their culture and how they think and operate. So I knew that if I were to just go at this and basically start, you know, b- basically take a, a linear systematic theology approach and start citing scriptures and stuff like that, that that actually may not do the job of of helping me communicate the gospel to them. And so I took an approach that was developed by John Warwick Montgomery. Uh, It's basically, he entitles it uh, an apologetic for the tender-hearted. And um, keeping in mind that many people who are who are self-identify as liberals, progressives, and emergents, that they're more they're really more attracted to and interested in narrative, in story, in art, in poetry, in and they see the world differently than than I do. And that that's not a bad thing because, quite frankly, we need uh, our culture would be completely abjectly impoverished without people who who really thought and felt the way they did and so what i what i wanted to do was effectively communicate the the gospel message of Christ and him crucified for our sins in a way that i hoped would be engaging to the audience that uh, that i was speaking to so with all of that in mind let's uh, dive into the program and into the interview and uh, you know we'll take this part as a debrief so uh, I'm going to play it, all the different segments in their entirety and and and, and comment along the way, but uh, you, you've got the gist of it. So here was my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program. Welcome back to Doug Paget Radio on AM 950, the Brother Love Travel and Salvation Show theme song chosen by Grover. It's January 17th, 2010. I'm glad to have uh, my friend Chris Roseboro on the program with me. Chris is calling in from Indiana. We've gone from San Diego to Indiana. i got to tell you, I got a little, uh, little correspondence this week from a woman in Spain who listens to the show on a regular basis. So glad to have you all aboard, all of you. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Chris uh, does a couple of things in his life. One of them, he runs a radio network called Christian Pirate Radio. I'm asking him to say something about that. You can find uh, info about him over at fightingforthefaith.com. Chris, thanks for being on the show with us. Doug, it's an honor to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me on. And it's a little tit for tat. Chris runs this uh, radio uh, network on an online radio network, and I was on his show a while back. So I said, Chris, when I get this uh, show up and going, I'd like to have you on. And frankly, I want to have Chris on for a couple of reasons because there's a number of 
uh, people in the network that, that Chris is a part of who view faith and approach faith from a different perspective than I do, and they uh, interact with people of differing beliefs different than I do, and I have quite often become the, uh, the object of their frustration, uh, the object of their... Um, of their uh, scorn, the object of their conversation, most certainly, over there uh, on their on their websites. And so I've asked Chris if he could come in and help the podcast and, and on-air uh, radio listeners here in the Twin Cities to get a perspective on why people, why some folks view the faith this way that I feel is like aggressive and is... Um, uh, it's name calling and and it's uh, fearful and I think that it's fear mongering and so I've said Chris rather than talking about these people uh, could you come on help us understand what's going on and so on so Chris I appreciate uh, your chance for, for for being on the program Doug again I, I thank you and uh, I, I really you know we talked yesterday and uh, you emailed me a few days ago and I, I told you I really wanted to come up with what I would consider a very thoughtful answer. And so I think the goal here is to kind of talk in general about uh, the major differences. And I'm going to try to answer the question as to why people call you a heretic. I think that would kind of be the thesis. Of, <laughs> of yeah. You know, uh, why don't I give people a little bit of a, a, a little bit of background here, a, a little context for uh, for what people uh, say? Because you know, I mean, look, and, and this, I'm, I'm not trying to defend. Uh, what I think about things. I'm, I'm not trying to say, hey, Chris, you know, think that I'm right about this. What I'm interested in, and I think you're going to be helpful for us on this, is w- why is it that people feel that the response that they give is a legitimate one? Uh, why, why do they speak like they do? Why do they uh, approach this topic in the way that they, that they try to, as opposed to um, you know, a, a number of other ways. And I'm not trying to say, look, the way I've got it going is the way that's absolutely right and the way everyone ought to do it. But it's, it's, it really is different. So um, let, me, let me give a couple of, of examples here of some things just from this week. Okay, so I'm not digging back years or months or anything like that. But just this week, the things that people from the network and the stream, and I think the kind of community that you could speak about and that you're a part of, have uh, that that have that that I have received from them or what they've written about me personally? Can I do that just so people get a context of what this is? Oh, please do. I think it helps. I put up a uh, a series of YouTube videos promoting my books called "The Christianity Worth Believing," and they're a little two minute, little you know, commercial type type things to give people a feel and a flavor for the book. And somebody wrote on YouTube a response to one of those that says this, Hi, Doug. Just curious as to know what it feels like to be a part of the apostate church. I just watched one of your videos of your disciples and couldn't help but notice her comment about how we need to stop focusing on sin and start to focus on our relationship with God. Although in your case, I guess the meanings of the Bible don't mean anything to you, right? I know this message might seem harsh, critical, and unfriendly, but you know, I've come to a conclusion, having hunted wolves, that I have no more patience for promoters of heresy in the church, which are leading untold many to hell, thinking they're right. But there is hope, and I ask that you repent for the false teachings that you're supporting and ask you to seek God for what you've promoted. And then on another website, it wrote this. 
in response to a guy's book that he quoted me in, said, In this, we see the thesis for John MacArthur's The Truth War, the name of the book, The Truth War, using the New Testament epistle of Jude as the foundation. He uses sacred scripture, does John MacArthur, to contrast the actual quotes from the such, such as Doug Paget and Rick Warren to to cement home to the believer why the church is so apostate in our time. The missing part is submission to God's truth as the truth in, in italicized uh, text. Hence, we are in the midst of a war. One thing I appreciate as I read through these things was that he not only showed the error of these men, but why it harms the church and offends God. Now, on another place, a guy did a, a little uh, review of my book, of, of another one of my books, and he wrote some nice things about it. And a commenter wrote, Tim, I'm actually shocked to read the positive notes in your review. I know Doug Paget. I've studied his ministry, and he's no friend of biblical preaching. Why would you say nice things about him? Another wrote, and this is all just this week, <laughs> referring to me, heretical, heretical, Quasi-universalist Pastor Doug Paget, who is actually a part of a plan to take over the visible church. Now, okay, so uh, here. Okay, I, I wanted to point this out that 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 last comment about the Doug Paget, who's part of a plan to take over the visible church, that is what I hope to uh, uh, address and dispel on uh, Thursday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Okay. I, I assure you, after talking with him and really getting the real story and researching and cross-referencing, uh, the emerging church is not part of the Bilderberg group. Okay, there are not Black Hawk helicopters flying over Solomon's porch in order to protect uh, uh, the important leader there in order that their global conspiracy can take root and take form. Uh, keep this in mind. Scripture tells us, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Okay? So, my conversations with Doug Paget, the way I frame them is with that verse. My battle is not against flesh and blood. My battle is not against Doug Paget. My battle is for Doug Paget. Our battle is for people that we believe are heretics and who do not hold to sound biblical doctrine and theology. We continue. Here's what I'm getting at. Like this kind of rhetoric, this is significant, right? This is, this is, this is big time rhetoric. Uh, your website, the way that you talk about your radio program there at pirate Christian radio, and you can find this folks at fighting for the faith. Dot com. On the sidebar, it describes the show, and it says, Finally, a real Christian radio station that's free from the scurvy plagues of pop psychology, goofy fads, self-help pietism, liberalism, purpose-driven-ism, emergent nonsense, and the sissy, girly, oprah spirituality that's being passed off as Christianity. So all this stuff sort of like lays together, and it kind of freaks me out, actually. War language, heresies, apostate church, wolves, I've hunted them, repent. I mean, this is very and, – and look, I'm a pastor that runs a church. Like, so, I mean, if they're turning on me like this and then commenters turning on other people who say nice things, 
Um, I mean, it's a big deal. So, so, so talk us through, and we'll have another segment here after the break where I know you want to tell a story that I think people can get it. But give us a little bit of a picture of you and how does this come together and why do people talk like this and what's going on and should people like me be freaked out that this is some kind of a Christian pre-modernity fundamentalism that would be on par with what you would see in radical Islam? Okay, now... <laughs> Notice the swipe there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. He just threw me in with radical Islam. That's right. You will repent, Doug Padgett, or you will die at the end of the sword. <laughs> no. Okay, what's that? Okay, that cracks me up. <laughs> the reason why that cracks me up is because here he's complaining about all this rhetoric, and <laughs> then he turns around and he puts all of those people on par with radical Islam. I, <laughs> I'm not sure if he meant to do that or if he doesn't realize that there's some real funny I- irony there. I just point it out because I think it's funny. But notice something. I'm not apologizing, and I will not apologize to the people, uh, to Doug Paget for the people who have called him to repentance and said that he's teaching false doctrine. Why? Because those people are right. Okay, they're right in calling him to repentance. Now, some of the rhetoric that was used is not the rhetoric I would use, and it's a little stronger than I would use. However, I've used some very strong rhetoric here at Fighting for the Faith, and I'm not going to apologize for it. The Scripture tells us that we are to rebuke those who do not teach or abide by sound doctrine, and to rebuke them sharply. Read Titus. Read Titus. Okay. So I'm not notice. I'm not going to apologize for the strong rhetoric. Okay. Because I do believe we are in a battle for the faith. Okay. Instead, my goal is to help him understand the thinking from which people are coming from, and to preach the gospel to his audience in a way that engages them and understands their culture. Now, you, one of the things you'll notice is, is that I talk about their authors, I talk about their their hot-button issues, and I use their language. Why? Because over the years, I've learned how to speak emergent by reading emergent, hanging out with emergents, and uh, speaking to it. You know, and, and so the idea here is, is that I've become I've become... I wouldn't say fluent, but I speak the language. And okay, and so I this is in a sense, I think that this is faithful to what Paul did on Mars Hill, where he starts with their poets to build common ground and then proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, because the gospel is universal. It's not just for a particular people group, it's for everybody. The good news of Christ dying for the for our sins on the cross is for everybody. So this is now uh, where I begin to tell the story, and I'm engaging in, I'm using the apologetic approach uh, developed by John Warwick Montgomery for sharing the Christian faith to those who are tender-hearted. Here we go. Okay, now this, these are fantastic questions. And uh, first of all, I want to I want to reiterate and kind of make this up, up front. What I'm going to say is uh, is going to definitely lay down what I consider some very strong truth claims, but. Having spent some time at emergent conferences and spending time with progressives, um, one of the things I really, truly enjoy about uh, those communities is that uh, they value beauty and art and story and narrative. And so my goal here in answering the question is to, is to paint a picture for you 
that uh, takes you in a, a different direction with the narratives that... Uh, that, that okay, good, because, because the narratives right now is these are people who talk about each other and about how I'm the enemy and people who think like I do are the enemy and the enemy needs to be destroyed and the enemy is trying to take over the visible church and we should do something to stop them. Right, and so, so let, let me... What's another way to view that? That's a, well, let me walk you through the narrative. Let's, let's take a look at the story and then we can come back and... Right. and uh, Hammer out the finer. Yeah, and, and, so, and so people know we have four and a half minutes in this segment, and we'll be back with the uh, with the next segment. So if we can't finish the story now, we we will finish it after the next segment. All right, here we go. It'll, it'll keep them on the edge of the seat. Right there, right there, right. Okay, we'll start with the simple passage. Okay, and this is the, it. Seems like an odd place to start, but Luke uh, records uh, the the words of our Lord uh, of our Lord Jesus saying, "I tell you the truth: anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it." And um, and so my basic thesis here is that they're defending what I would consider to be biblical childlike faith. Okay, now, why am I going along those lines? Real simple, okay? I consider the presuppositions of pre-modernity to be very much in line with what Christ called us, calls us to, and that is childlike faith. And that is, is that you can trust, you can believe the scriptures, that they are, they are, they are true, that you don't need to overthink them and, and get involved in questions about whether or not it can be trusted. And if you want to answer those questions, I can give you answers to it. But the idea here is, is that the scripture calls us to a childlike faith, that there is a such thing as truth. I don't know any five-year-olds you know, who sit there you know, and, when they, and when the teacher tells them, you know, six-year-olds in first grade, and the teacher tells them one plus one equals two, I don't see any six-year-olds going, you know, though in a postmodern society, that really seems like a very limiting view of truth. And what we really need to do is embrace more of a pluralistic concept of truth. No, a teacher tells a child one plus one equals two. The child goes, okay, one plus one equals two. I believe you, teacher. That's kind of where I'm getting at here. Now, again, this will be really fleshed out in greater detail in Phil Johnson's lecture in the second hour, but we continue. Let me tell you the story, you know, to kind of go with this. If you've read G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, he actually says something that, that would, you know, to the, to the outside reader might sound completely unorthodox. He talks about the sanity and the truth of fairy stories. And, um, and so when we really look at, the, at the, what's going on in the world, I think McLaren's question is what is the story that we find ourselves in is actually a very useful question. And uh, looking at fairy stories first, um, I, one of my favorite modern-day fairy stories is, is, uh, is Hook. If you, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's a fantastic mm -hmm. movie. And uh, the story is, is that Peter Pan left Neverland, grew up, and became an attorney. And, um, and, and really was kind of a schmuck, if you would. And, um, and what happens is, is that he returns to England, and uh, his children are kidnapped by Captain Hook. And what happens is, is that he's forgotten who he is, mm. and um, and so the, the the gal who plays Wendy Moira Angela Darling, it, as a senior citizen, as an old Wendy, tries to convince Peter of who he really is, and she shows him a picture of himself in his full glory, you know, from her bedside mm -hmm. edition of mm -hmm. Peter Pan that she keeps on her desk, and he couldn't believe who he really was. He couldn't make himself remember who he was. And I think in a real way, humanity has a, has a hard time remembering who we are and where we are. And that's why the Bible is so important, because the story we find ourselves in uh, begins in a garden 
but what's funny is is that C.S. Lewis writes about the fact that uh, humanity has what we call good dreams, or what he calls good dreams. And so in our fairy stories, we have stories like Sleeping Beauty, you know, the story, the story about a beautiful princess who on, her, on, uh, on the announcement of her birth, she's cursed by an evil witch named Maleficent who wants her nothing but dead. And so there, and, uh, and what ends up happening is, is that she ends up touching a spindle, and rather than dying according to the curse, she falls into a sleep, and she has to be rescued by her prince. In a similar way, we've got a beautiful story of uh, Beauty and the Beast, where the beast is, you know, is born this, uh, a prince, and, uh, but he's ugly on the inside, and he's cursed, and everything around him is cursed as a result of his, of his self-centered inbentness. And, uh, and he's rescued by the sacrificial love of this girl named Belle. And all of these stories, all of these stories, what's funny is, is that Chesterton has this fantastic quote where he says that, um, that these uh, fairy tales are more true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. And so the mm-hmm. story we find ourselves in really tells us of real evil and real and, and a real loving God. There's really true evil. And, really and, so, and so every one of these stories needs the antagonist who's on the side of evil. And in this case, these people make that out to be other pastors and other church leaders. <laughs> okay. No, notice his desire to kind of get to the point, you know, but uh, I've got, I've got more to tell him. So, uh, he, he thinks he knows how the story is going to end, but he doesn't. Well, actually, you're jumping way ahead in the narrative. There's so much. There's more chapters we have to go through. We have to actually look <laughs> okay. at the story well, yeah, we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're we're, we're going to get to that when we come back because I want you to to pull these pieces together and and help okay. me understand how. Because I know that you've articulated that you uh, aren't a a modern theologian. You're a pre-modern theologian. Correct. So I want to, so, yeah. Pre- and by the way, you're going to get the full definition of what that means in the second hour of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith with Phil Johnson's uh, lecture on a primer on postmodernity. So, but uh, pre-modern, you're thinking. So I want to ask you about that when we come back. Then, if you finish out this story in our in our final uh, eight minute segment here on uh, on on how it is that we can understand. Uh, the, the kinds of people who think and talk in religious terms like this have it make some sense. Glad to have you all aboard. This is Chris Roseboro. Uh, all right. So uh, that was the first. That was the first segment uh, on uh, Doug's radio program. We are up on our first break. In fact, we're a little bit late for it, and uh, we're going to continue with our debrief on my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program uh, this past Sunday. And if you would like to email me, you can do so. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheap O Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheap O Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Warning. False doctrine exposed daily here at Fighting for the Faith. All 
All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this radio program, in fact, the entire Pirate Christian Radio Network, to you. And the way you support us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on the Join Our Crew button. Notice that it's still January. It is, in fact, January 19th. And in the month of January, we have a generous anonymous donor who is doing something fantastic. He's challenging you all to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew and help us reach our goal of having a 1,000 crew members uh, that have joined so that we can meet our financial goals every month and continue to bring this program to you uh, without any m- major financial strain. In fact, when we get to a thousand, then that guarantees that we meet our minimum amount every single month. So here's the deal. What he's done is he's he's going to basically, if you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew this month in the month of January, he's going to take your monthly your your January membership dues and he's going to triple it. So. In fact, it's six ninety five a month to be a member of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, and he's going to triple your January uh, uh, contributions. So this is a great time to join the crew because, uh, well, February is when <clears throat> the other generous contributor to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio is no longer able to support us. So <laughs> we're on our own starting very, <laughs> very soon. So uh, if you haven't done so, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, when we left off, we were, before the break, we were listening to uh, my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program. We are working our way through it. Here is the beginning of segment number two now on my appearance on Doug Paget Radio. Uh. Welcome back to Doug Paget Radio on AM 950 and com. I'm uh, having a conversation here with my friend Chris Roseborough, and Chris runs a website called fightingforthefaith.com. You can find out more there and about his radio, uh, internet radio network called Pirate Christian Radio. Chris is helping us to understand how it is that some religious people can speak in terms that sound so inflammatory, that uh, have enemies that are other religious people, and how that makes sense to them in a, in a, a Christianity that is supposed to be built around uh, sacrifice, love, commitment, and the presence and activity of God in our world. And so, uh, okay, did you hear that? <clears throat> Going to back this up. I want you. This tells you a little bit about. Uh, Doug Paget's theology. Let me, I'm going to back this up just a little bit. I want you to hear what he said. And how that makes sense to them in a, in a, a Christianity that is supposed to be built around uh, sacrifice, love, commitment, and the presence and activity of God in our world. And so uh, during the break, uh, Grover, our, uh, our uh, esteemed um, producer here at the show, or uh, audio producer here at the show, uh, came in and said, you know, I got to tell you, this is why religion's just better kept to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, Chris and I are two who don't think religion's better kept to yourself. We think it should be part of the public conversation, part of the public flow. And so we both do it in public ways. And we, th- I think it's better that we have these conversations with one another than simply about one another. So, Chris, uh, we had to interrupt you because of the commercial break. Go, go on with the, uh, with the picture here of, okay. of how folks would, would understand this. You talked about the, the idea that there's this inward sense of these, this fairy tale that can help us understand the struggle that we live in in our world. Right. Now, all of those fairy tales, you know, these good dreams that C.S. Lewis writes about, they end up pointing us to the story that we actually find ourselves in, the one that we've forgotten who we are. And uh, what we find in the scriptures 
is that uh, that our first parents were created by God. He spoke them into existence. And I love the way Lewis uh, portrays the creation as the, the the God Christ figure Aslan in his books. Uh, in one of in one of them that he talks, he, he describes him singing the worlds into existence. It's absolutely beautiful. And so our God speaks us into existence. He speaks the, the heavens and the earth into existence. And everything that he creates is good. And yet we find that there is real evil, that there is a real enemy. And uh, he, really choo- he really is all about steal- stealing, killing, and destroying and enslaving. And uh, he enslaves humanity by deceiving our first parents to disobey the one command that God had laid down for them. And as a result of it, we find in the biblical narrative that we are all enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. But God is not going to sit, stand by and just let us all be taken in slavery by, by the great enemy of his. And so he steps into humanity as Jesus Christ, God incarnate, and he wins this decisive victory against Satan by dying on the cross for all of our sins. And while Jesus was here on earth, he... Okay, notice here. You just heard the gospel, and you heard it in context of of the overarching story of Scripture. Why did I want to make that as a goal uh, when I was on Doug Padgett's radio program? Why? Because I believe through the preaching of the gospel, God's Word says this, Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. This is the weapon that we have. This is the most powerful thing that the Christian has in his arsenal, and that's the preaching and the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. That's why I wanted to to do this. So you'll notice I've appealed to them in a way where I tried to find common ground and then use that to leverage it into proclaiming what Christ has done for us on the cross. Critical point here. And so, remember, I believe that apologetics is not uh, an end in itself, but apologetics is for removing obstacles so that you can proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. We continue. spoke about our great enemy and also talked about the fact that, that, that the good news that, that, that he had wanted us to proclaim, repentance of mm-hmm. our sins and forgiveness in his name because of what he's done for us on the cross— that the great enemy would not sleep, but that he would also send out false prophets and false teachers mm-hmm. who, would, who would then try to mess up the message. But mm-hmm. the story doesn't end there, because what, what we've learned is, is that our great God and King, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and calls us to repentance and to receive the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross, is also some gonna, someday going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so, so that's Chris Roseborough. He's laying out his view of how you'd understand the Bible. I would narrate it and will on this radio show much differently than that. I think it's a better story than that. But Okay, now this is an important point that, that Doug has brought up. Now, I don't have a problem with the fact that he said that um, he has a different way that he would narrate it. That shows and actually kind of makes my point is that Doug has a completely different read on Scripture. So the question really before us, okay, as we move forward in the conversation, is whose narrative, whose retelling of the story is accurate to the way the story is laid out in Scripture? That's really the the, the, the question to ask, and the answer to that is only found in a careful, exacting study of the Scriptures themselves, looking at the whole counsel of the Word of God. So 
But notice here, he's made no bones about the fact that he would tell the story very differently. And that's really what's at the heart of why people call Doug Paget a heretic, because the way he tells the story doesn't include the elements of Christ's death on the cross for our sins in a penal substitutionary way. Doesn't call men to repentance and receiving the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. Doesn't use that language, which, by the way, is very explicitly used over and again throughout the New Testament. So he's made it clear that he has a different take on it. And you can almost hear the he's a little frustrated at this point. But we continue. So in that way that these folks are thinking about it, Okay, now um, let's come back. Let's come back. Yeah, why let's come back now. So, so why in that storyline do people like me become the false prophet? What? Okay, now listen carefully because he does kind of talk over me, and but, but I'll clarify. Here we go. Well, and, and they hold the truth and so on. Is it because they, like you, want to hold to a pre-modern theology? I think you're over. I think you're overthinking it. Let me. Let, oh, okay. <laughs> Good, because I think they're underthinking it. So maybe, maybe it was somewhere we could find the middle. Come back to my original yeah. premise that, yeah. that uh, Christ calls us to have the faith of a child. Yes. And so here's what happens: is that uh, you know the stream that you're running in has adopted uh, the views of postmodernism, and what happens is is that the role you're playing by adopting postmodernism is that you actually take on the sound and character of the serpent in the garden. Because what happens is, is that... Why would that be? Came, because it's new? Because and deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve, was through a question. So Did questions are the problem. really say? Okay, now, this is where the, Doug and I were, were talking past each other, and unfortunately I think he kind of missed the gist of what it was I was trying to say. It's not that questions are bad per se. We all have questions. We all have doubts. The thing is is that postmodernism has at its core this uh, basically this, this understanding that the truth really isn't knowable. And so it engages in deconstruction. It basically deconstructs knowledge to the point where you can't know anything with any certainty. And so as a result of it, the question that Satan asks Adam and asks Eve in the garden sounds exactly like what you get in postmodern circles. Did God really say? It's not the question per se that's the problem. It's that it's, it's really the, the target of the question. The target of the question is to create doubt, to unhook you from what God has clearly said, and to create confusion and subterfuge where there was clarity before, which is exactly what happens in postmodern circles. So what happens is, is as you're listening to the interview here, Doug is talking while I'm trying to explain, and I think he missed a vital piece of this. And as a result of it, he's missed the point of, of what I'm trying to make here. That's okay. We're in a conversation, and, and sometimes you have to circle back and, and clarify things. We continue. So, that, that, so first attack. So are you saying that, that, that in, 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 in that way of thinking then that anyone who raises questions about other people's articulation, they get sort of put into the role of the serpent deceiver by asking the questions? No. <laughs> See, he's, he's struggling to understand this. Um, it's it ultimately comes down to the conclusions that are drawn. Okay, but so, so what well, happens is, is it that the conclusions? All of us have, the, doubts. All of us or, have questions. Okay, because I because I thought you said that that you, you you end up playing the role of the one asking the questions by having this postmodern recognition that systems are set up that that oppress humanity and we should ask questions about those. So, <laughs> so okay, so here's what's happening here. Okay. 
Doug, he's hearing something different than what I'm saying. Why? Because there's shorthand for his 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 postmodern way of thinking, and there's shorthand for my way of thinking, and we're talking past each other. So we're, we've got to hammer these things out. And so he he's struggling to really get it. I think it can be freed, and I would say be freed by the by the life and the spirit of God. That we should ask those questions of the systems that oppress. So were you were you suggesting that those would be perceived as being the works of the devil? Um, listen. <laughs> okay. I wasn't talking about systems that oppress. I was talking about how Satan undermines the authority and questions the authority of Scripture when God said. Now, this is kind of an important uh, thing to keep in mind. Um, uh, and th- those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, there is an article that I posted there uh, written by Gearhart Forty. Uh, that talks about uh, the authority of Scripture when it comes to sexual uh, sexual immorality, uh, specifically referring to Romans chapter 1. Now, the reason I put that up there is because Gearhart Forty makes a very interesting observation, and Gearhart Forty was one of the last remaining confessional Lutherans in the ELCA seminaries. A guy was absolutely a genius. He was brilliant. And uh, one of the things he points out in this article here is is that many people and, and liberals kind of have the wrong idea. They seem to think that uh, it's their job to uh, interpret the scriptures. It's their job to exegete the scriptures. In reality, no. The job of the scriptures is to exegete you. Okay. It's you see these guys are very mistaken. Postmoderns are very mistaken in thinking that they can posture themselves in such a way that they can stand over God's word and be judges over it as to what's true in it and what's not true in it. Okay, that's not the point of the scriptures. The point of the scriptures is it's God's word and it stands in judgment over you, and the judgment that it renders regarding you in light of the law is true. You are a sinner. So the solution that the liberals come up with by posturing themselves above the scriptures and basically saying that, well, we're going to throw out these passages regarding homosexuality because, you know, that those, those should be uh, culturally interpreted. And, and nowadays in our postmodern culture, we're talking about sec- uh, homosexuality as an orientation, not a sin. Therefore, we can throw these passages out and, and, and we don't have to believe that the, uh, that Jesus really rose from the dead or that, uh, the, that Adam and Eve were historical people and so we're going to throw all that and so what happens is, is they posture themselves where they stand in judgment over the scriptures they're missing the whole point childlike faith instead which is what Christ calls us to it basically has us understand that God's word is true and trustworthy and sound and solid and and it is true historically it's accurate and what it does is it judges you you don't stand in judgment over it it judges you think of it this way the uh, the O.J. Simpson trial, um, and I remember watching this thing. Think of the O.J. Simpson trial when O.J. Simpson was on trial for murder. Okay, and he hired his dream team attorneys, you know Johnny Cochran and uh, and the gang. Um, that was a very postmodern trial legal proceeding. Why? The reason why is because the defense that that. Uh, that O.J. Simpson and his team employed was not whether or not he committed murder. In fact, if you remember the trial very specifically, uh, what happened is is that the the the, the attorneys for O.J. Simpson 
we're not really interested in answering, basically even dealing with the questions and the evidence that was being brought up by the prosecuting attorneys. Instead, O.J. Simpson's defense team went on the attack and attacked the police officers and the LAPD and the detectives and the homicide people and, and the way they collected evidence and everything like that in order to basically build the case that you can't know with any certainty whether or not O.J. Simpson committed this crime. Because there's a vast conspiracy in the uh, in that could potentially be existing there in the uh, LAPD. That's postmodernism. Okay, that that w- I kid you not. That's exactly what's going on. So what happened is rather than looking at the evidence, they deconstructed the uh, the the police authorities that were responsible for collecting the evidence and uh, and 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 doing their jobs. They basically tore them apart. And so then what happened at the end of it is, is O.J. Simpson was acquitted because you couldn't say with any degree of certainty whether or not he really did commit the crime. Because, well, the police, we don't know if there was a, a, a conspiracy there to uh, suppress evidence. Right. That's what goes on in postmodernism. In the postmodern circles, what happens is you can't know anything with certainty because the, it, it, postmodernism postures itself above the scriptures in such a way that you can't know what a sin is and what isn't a sin. You can't know what, what is true and not true regarding it, but it's a beautiful narrative. You see, you see and there's some positive things about it. So postmodernism is very much akin to its kissing cousin, modernism. It's a different spin on it, but it's very similar. But the problem is, is that we're not to posture ourselves above Scripture. Scripture is above us, and it exegetes us. It judges us. And the only solution given for the problem that the Scriptures so clearly demonstrate that we have, which is our sinful rebellion against God, the only solution to the problem is Christ and Him crucified for our sins. So what happened, in a very real way, what postmodern emergents are doing is trying to build a case against God that actually won't stand up in in God's court. Because these guys don't actually have a license to practice law in God's kingly court. I mean, seriously, it's like trying to cover your, you know, cover your nakedness with fig leaves. Do they really think that when they stand before God and have to give an accounting of, of their doctrine, their theology, and their teaching, the, the, for instance, like on the doctrine of homosexuality, the emergents are embracing uh, open homosexuals, okay? Basically claiming that God's word isn't clear when, it's, you know, when it is very clear on these things. Do they really think that when they stand in God's court that they're going to be able to say, listen, God, don't judge us about the fact that we were telling homosexuals that, it was, that, that God was blessing them and that they can be in a, in, a, in a relationship and still be members of our church. Your word wasn't clear on this because we were employing this particular exegetical technique or whatever. Do you think that's really going to stand up in God's court? No flimsy defense attorney schemes are going to stand up in God's court. The only thing that's going to stand up in God's court is Christ and him crucified for our sins. You see what I'm talking about here? Anyway, I, I just wanted to kind of get that in there to help, but let's continue. When I tell you, when you talk about humanity being oppressed, mm-hmm. okay, when we see systems being in place to exploit the poor, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, I am absolutely incensed at the stories that are coming out of Haiti mm-hmm. and how these people have been exploited, kept in poverty mm-hmm. by wealthy people who've basically mm-hmm. uh, in, it, 
engross themselves mm-hmm. on the backs of these poor Haitians. Mm-hmm. I just I, I, oh, yeah, I, right, right. Makes you I, makes I, you I, lose I, your literally lose your mind, lose, lose your bearings. Can't even see can't even straight. think straight. Yeah, right. I'm but, with you. But, but here's the bigger here's the bigger reality behind all this is that that symptom. In reality, all of us, all of us when we are born into this world, are born in slavery to evil. That's the way the narrative goes. So what happens is, is that poverty, as we see it, is a symptom of the bigger poverty that all of us, by nature, are spiritually impoverished. And when we look at, when we look at, uh, you know, but but how come, Chris? And we have two minutes. I think I'm going to have to hold you over if you can till the eleven o'clock hour because I want to talk sure. more about this. Here's what gets me about this: guys who write these blog posts, the guy who writes to me about your apostate, the people who say these things, they say we're all born into that. But you, Doug, I can tell because of the things that you say, the questions you ask, and the answers you provide, you don't fit what I've already determined to be my understanding of the truth. Okay, now, this that's a funny way of putting it. You don't fit what I've already determined to be my understanding of the truth. Notice that's a postmodern deconstruction. No, actually, Doug, that's not correct. The problem is that you are telling a different narrative. You've tweaked the narrative. You've basically sliced out very important pieces of the narrative and have put together something that is different. You're actually proclaiming good news, but it's a different good news. It's a different gospel that doesn't have all of the pieces of the narrative in place. The truth, capitalized and italicized, and therefore you are still part of that old, evil, wicked story that I want to tell in fairy tale like um, modeling, but I'm not part of that, so I now am a different kind of a uh, of a person in relationship with God than you are. So everything that you do and say is about the work that's evil, because there's two options in this world: to be on the side of evil or on the side of good. And that and this is where he's right. He, that's right. There are there there are two streams that you're in. You you are either for God or you are against God. You're either proclaiming the true gospel or you're proclaiming something that's false about God, not true. So what's going to be the thing that decide, that's going to be the tiebreaker? It has to be God's word. We have to objectively come back to it and stop judging it and let it speak for itself and let it judge our theology, not us judge God's word. You see, because in the postmodern way, it's all backwards. He seems to think that those who are you know, who are accusing him of heresy are actually it's not that he's committed heresy it's just that he's run afoul of their particular interp- you know system that they've laid over the bible and uh, that he's not really run afoul of god's word that's really important because in postmodernism there's really no certainty regarding who who's got it right and it really doesn't even matter in postmodernism as to who's got it right because you, you can't really know with certainty anyway what's totally true and what's not, especially when it comes to God. That kind of thing might work in sort of pre-modern fairy tales, but I don't think that that's the gospel at all. And I don't think that that's something that can make sense in the world that we live in when you meet people and know people who come from such varying perspectives and all have uh, a life of God that's being demonstrated with them and in them. Again, this is interesting. What's he making an appeal to? Not to the clear teaching of God's word. This is an appeal to his experience. Okay. That's critical in understanding Doug Paget and the emergence, okay, is that they've deconstructed God's word in such a way that it doesn't have the last say. And he's now trying to make sense of what's left of the narrative in light of his 
experience and experience does play a, a very important part in the in the construction of their theology and their gospel that that comes out really clearly in in what he just said and that i think is indicative of the postmodern era so in real in a very real way and keep this in mind we're going to get to this when we get to uh Phil Johnson's lecture on a, a kind of a primer on postmodernism you'll you'll understand these categories a lot clearer and but come back and listen to this and you'll see what i'm saying is is that um he you know this is this is an appeal to experience not an appeal to the clear teaching of the word of god why because postmodernism deconstructs authoritative things like the bible i mean if if i'm seen as the enemy the one on the side of the of the deceiving serpent what does that mean for those who don't have any interest in the story of jesus at all i mean it's it's really quite a it, what it means is according to the clear teaching of the word of god they're still under god's wrath that's what the text says. That's what Jesus says. I think to take on that view is really quite a quite a powerful and tragic thing. So can, can you hold on until the 11 oh, o'clock sure. hour? Because we have one more segment that, I've, that I have time for here, and I'd love to talk with you about this uh, a little sure. bit more. Can, can we do that? Okay, Chris, th- thanks a lot. That's Chris Roseborough. You can find out more about him if you're, if you're on the Internet. Okay, so that was my segment number two. And uh, when we come back from our second break, we will uh, finish off the balance of my interview on Doug Paget's radio program. We're doing a debrief on it. And uh, it really in the hopes of continuing the conversation and really helping those who are emergent to understand really where the difference is. Uh, j- just like uh, pre-modern Christianity, which is what I think I subscribe to pretty heavily, um, it was against modernist modernism. So pre-modern Christianity also must stand against postmodernism and its assumption because postmodernism is not compatible with Christianity. It's not compatible with biblical Christianity. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. You know, pirate Christian. I think you get the idea. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. 
Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said, Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. Fighting for the Faith. We're in the middle of our uh, debrief with my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program. Very fascinating to listen to this, uh, especially kind of going back and really trying to hear and understand where Doug is coming from and where the really where the point of confusion is. All right. Without any further ado, here is the balance of my. Appearance on Doug Paget's radio program as we debrief and take a closer look at uh, what was going on in that interview. January 17th, 11.06, six minutes past the hour. I'm continuing a conversation from the first hour. Never done that on this show before. We're doing it this time with Chris Roseborough, and we're chatting here about how it is that some people use language, imagery of faith that allows them to say about people like me. You're very, you know, whimsical and charming radio show host that I'm a heretic apostate Do- uh, I think the simplest way to have done this would basically say well here's how it's defined and let's see if you fit the definition but I was keeping in mind that uh, that you know I wanted his audience to hear the gospel and to basically hear it in a more narrative way but we continue doing the work of the devil causing worse things in the world than if I wasn't alive at all <laughs> And so uh, I'm asking Chris if he can give us a little background, a little a little picture, a little vision of how that makes sense. And he spent the first two, uh, the last two segments of the first hour uh, painting that picture for us. So, Chris, uh, I, I appreciate that. And, and I'm getting the picture here. And what it feels like to me is that old saying that uh, when 
because you're creating this picture that there's good and that there's evil and you're on one yeah. side or the other and God wants to bring people over from the, that when you have that sort of view of the world, which I don't think is the way the Bible narrates it at all. Okay. Now, th- I, listen, that's an honest statement on his part. That is a, see, that would be a, a point of a great debate topic. Does the Bible narrate it that way? Yes or no? Let's look at the, let's look at the text. Okay. So he's basically, in a very real way, saying, hey, listen, I I don't agree with that way of talking about the Bible. You have a completely different way of talking about it than I do. Now, there we can have a real discussion. Why? Okay, how do we solve the problem then? Let's look at the text. Let's look at the text. What does the text say? Uh-huh. Frankly, and I would I would tell a radically different story by simply reading the Bible without even having to do any funny play with it. I think you folks are doing. But... <laughs> Hey, that's his opinion. This see, this is we're making progress here. We're having a conversation about this. It's that little saying, you know, when you all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. It, that's what this feels like. Like if your whole storyline is there's got to be a bad guy, and I'm sure not the bad guy. No, this isn't exactly the story. He's kind of twisting the story at this point. It's not the the the, the, the biblical tale is that we're all born bad guys. We're all born under the control of the bad guy, and Christ has set us free from that bad guy by dying on the cross for our sins. And uh, and calling us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and and that re- our relationship uh, to God is restored by what Christ has done, not us. So notice that he's not quite getting the the, the subtler contours of the narrative that I told. Then I got to find myself a bad guy. That's kind of what it feels like to me is going on here. And well, me- and, and and what I and I want to ask you a little bit here about this this yeah. pre-modern Christianity thing that we uh-huh. talked about yesterday. Right. You, you know, this tells me what he's about to say tells me he doesn't get what I'm saying on this. Yeah, okay, now is this his fault? No, probably it's actually my fault. I you know, here I was using a term and I mean something by it, but he's not getting the gist of what it means. So he needs some clarification at this point. So this is actually a weakness in my approach here is that I was using terminology that I understood that he didn't. And so he's now grabbing at straws to try to figure out what does that mean exactly. And and he doesn't quite get it. Here's the phrase that I am articulating, this postmodern question-asking way of going. And and you said you're not modern. And for people who don't know these philosophical categories, modern would sort of be the last 300, 150 to 300 years. Some people even say 500 years. And you would say you're before that. You're pre-modern. Well, right. here's what I want to know about that. Do you carry a pre-modern cosmology? Now, what I should have done here is ask him what he means by that. But I didn't. So, Yes. So the earth is the center of the universe? No, 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 no. Okay. Hold on. I'll do that. <laughs> Yeah, because okay, here's the deal. What's he think? He th- by the way, I think there's great evidence out there that pre-moderns did not hold to a, a Earth-centric view of the universe. Okay, that's a medieval concept, but uh, there's really good evidence, you know, historical evidence that there, were, even the ancient Greeks did not believe that the Earth was the center of the universe. We continue. I'm just, I'm just wondering. So, so, so not that because that's what people want. I, by the way, Doug, I, I don't believe in a flat Earth either. Just want to make sure. Wonder, and I wonder about it. If you say I have a pre-modern theology, then I think, well, you don't think about the the universe in the way that people did at that age, but you think Let's about God that way. Let's talk epistemology. Well, hang on a minute, but but how, here's here's what I want to piece together with you. How is it that you can hold an epistemology or theology, which means the way you understand truth or the way you think about God, 
from the 13th, 11th, 5th century, but you don't want to think about the universe that way. Like, how do you live in a world, in, in your head, in a way that says, I run an internet radio show? Okay, now, th- now, those of you listening might think that he's actually being disingenuous and what he's trying to do is trip me up. No, he's actually not. He's actually actually asking some very legitimate questions here because he's trying to figure out where the boundaries of what it is that I mean when I say I'm pre-modern in my in my thinking. And uh, and so he's trying to reconcile that and and he's doing it clumsily. And it, it, it shows that I didn't communicate very well what I meant by that, which is one of the reasons why at, as soon as we're done doing this debrief, I'm going to be playing uh Phil Johnson's primer on postmodernism which goes into all of these different categories so that you know exactly what it is that I was really trying to get at in this piece of it because this is actually a weakness in my approach at this point and I don't think Doug is trying to exploit the weakness I think he's actually re- legitimately trying to figure out okay where's the boundaries with this other category that I'm really not familiar with because when he thinks about pre-moderns what is he thinking He's thinking flat Earth. Uh, uh, the Earth is the center of the universe. Um, he's, you know, he's he's really got some weird medieval concepts brought up, uh, into it, and that somehow that pre-moderns would have an aversion to uh, using new technology in order to communicate the gospel. Well, no, that's not it at all. Okay. And so the pre-moderns believe that you can know the truth and that God and that there is a higher truth in in God Himself. Okay, and that you can know things with certainty. The moderns come around and they basically deny that miracles are possible. They deem that to be so from their armchairs. And then uh, postmoderns come around and they attack thought itself using deconstructive uh, methods and philosophy. So when I, what I'm talking about here is a, an epistemological approach to whether or not you can know the truth and and how God plays into all of that. Not, I'm, the pre-moderns would not have an aversion to uh, you know to using the internet by the way luther is pre-modern in his approach he is not modern okay modernism is is really uh, a product of the enlightenment it goes back to the 16th century and the new theology that's that basically is is taking deistic concepts and fusing them into christian theology and you get these bizarre, you know, liberal ideas that are you know, that engage in historical criticism and deconstructing the Bible and things like that. Postmodernism does similar things. Anyway, I just I wanted to clarify there. So when you're hearing Doug here, I don't think for a second he's trying to trip me up. I think he's really legitimately trying to figure out what what I mean by that term. That's very 21st century technology and understanding. But my thoughts on God. They're not going to be affected by 21st century. They're only going to be affected by 5th century to 13th century. Uh, no, actually, it goes farther back than that. Uh, my thoughts regarding God are beholden to the Word of God, which actually predates Christ Himself in many places, in a large portion of the Scriptures. The majority of the Scriptures predate Christ. So I'm, we're talking stuff that goes BC. Because why? I hold to a concept known as sola scriptura, and that is is that the the Bible is the inerrant only inspired word of God and the and really the only certain authority when it comes to knowing anything about God. And there's concepts about God that are re, that God has revealed about himself and his word that pre, you know, they go all the way back to uh, the second millennia BC and farther. Okay. So you don't think about the universe that way. I take it you don't think about marriage the way that someone would in that period. 
as my wife as chattel? No. <laughs> and by the way, I don't think the Bible teaches that wife or wives are chattel. Okay. So he's he's thinking culturally. I'm thinking epistemologically. Yeah. Okay. So and and you don't think about you don't think about medicine in that way. So I'm terribly intrigued why it feels faithful to take like pre-modern fairy tale theology and say that's how I want to understand God. I, that's that's very trippy to me. Help help help, at, help help me bring that together. Let's look at the epistemological assumptions of pre-modernity. Well, okay, but, but but can you help me understand? I'm, I'm totally up for that. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm okay, doing it. but you're going to explain why you can hold an epistemology from one age, but not the rest of the understanding of that age, how you can let the rest. <laughs> it's real simple because throughout the different ages, different people have had ideas and conclusions that are contradicted by the word of God. God words, God's word still holds true. Just because I believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God does not mean that I automatically, which, by the way, is a pre-modern concept, uh, doesn't mean that I automatically somehow am now going to hold on to this idea that my wife is chattel, though the earth is flat in the center of the universe, or things like that, because that's not taught in the scriptures. So that go? certain artifacts that were in the culture that I, that I don't consider to be necessarily part of pre-modernity. Okay, so okay. you have to... You have okay. to look at the artifacts, and you have to look at the epistemology. So, so you're, so you're, saying, so can I clarify that? Because we have a lot of people that aren't very technical, and they're listening, you know, in their, in their, in their theology and so on here. Uh-huh. You're, you're suggesting that there's, that that it's possible to lead to to think about uh, truth and God and so on in one way, and that's more pure to that age. But the artifacts of cosmology, uh, uh, anthropology. Uh, biology, those are just the artifacts, but the epistemology is forever and always. I, I think the epistemology runs deeper, correct? And I and what I'm talking wow. about okay. here is epistemology, and that is, is the idea that truth is knowable, and it's knowable with certainty, and that there's a higher authority to appeal to when it comes to truth. Okay, so can you tell at the When we look at the world, at God's Word, we're looking at a revealed truth that is trustworthy historically and trustworthy as it touches to who God is, what he expects of us, and what he's done for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of it, uh, faith is not doubt, which the postmoderns really seem to be embracing, and that, and that uh, humbleness is not uncertainty, but instead we can with certainty, like a, tr- a child, trust the story that Christ died for our sins Jesus actually walked on water. There really was an Adam and Eve. There really was a flood. There really was a King David. And, uh, and, and the stories can be trusted historically. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Jesus himself spoke and talked about these stories in such a way as if he was there, they truly happened, and they were, were historical. Sure. His credentials were verified by claiming to be God in human flesh and ultimately verifying that claim by raising himself from the dead on the third day. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, so it's, it, doesn't, it's, it doesn't trouble you to say, I'll take the epistemology of an age, but none of the rest of the ologies or the way of thinking. You can well, pluck let's, that let's one out. Let's, let's give an example, okay? Yeah. The scriptures themselves, funny enough, I don't think bear out this idea that, that our, our solar system is somehow uh, uh, centered on the earth. It's not, no, I don't, I don't think, think so at all. <laughs> in fact, if you really look at the text, yeah, you know, you, I agreed. Yeah. That, okay, but however, 
one of the things we're constantly fighting of uh, fighting over is is that is when the church gets into the position of political power, mm-hmm. really bad things happen. I mean, just really to the point where scientists who are observing what's mm-hmm. going on in, 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 in the natural creation yeah. are running afoul of man-made theology. Yeah. And there yeah. are those. Things that have been overlaid on the Bible that don't belong. And so we always constantly have to be looking for those things. And you don't feel that that's a struggle? That you feel like somebody could create uh, an ology that's of the age and should be let by, but epistemology, they got that one right, but they didn't get the all the other ologies right. All the other ologies can change, I think it, but an I think epistemology it can't. with truth a lot better when we look at it. For instance, the fact that we can know things cert- with certainty is, is actually just borne out in our experience. For instance, you gave me a phone number to call you on today, and I didn't go, you know, I'm just not certain if I dial this number, no, I'll you had be confidence. able to actually get a hold right. of Doug Padgett Radio. Right. You, you, you had confidence that that, that call would go through, but it, but it wasn't something like, this is the truth, and I would die for it if someone were to come to me and say, are you... You know, are you certain without any kind of doubt or question? You just have a functional confidence, and I'm I'm all with that. Okay, going to point something out here. Now, notice that he took what I said and he he tweaked it. No, I was absolutely certain that if I dialed that number, I would get uh, Doug Paget's. Uh, you know, I would get his thing. I'm, I was absolutely certain about it. I had no reason to doubt that that was the case. Now, was that a truth worth dying for? You know, <laughs> you know. So look how he's retooling things a little bit here. Well, I have absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. I base this upon the eyewitness historical testimony. But more importantly than that, I'm putting – think of it as a roulette table, if you would. I'm putting all the blue chips on Jesus, and I know that that one's going to be the winning number. Okay, that and, and I'm saying that with confidence and certainty because there is nothing – there is nothing – there is no better – evidence out there for God and who he sure, is. In fact, sure. if you were to ask me if I knew there was a God, and, I'd say yeah. absolutely, because Jesus Christ was God in human flesh and proved it by raising himself from the dead. Okay, and, and we well, didn't raise himself from the dead, but uh, and, and, and I get what you're, what you're saying. All, all, I, all I want to suggest here is... Okay, hold on a second here. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta take issue with that. Now, you know, Doug, throughout the interview, has more than hinted at the fact that he doesn't agree with the narrative that I told, Yet the narrative that I told is consistent with orthodox biblical Christianity through the history of the church, okay? And he's just taken issue with the fact that I claimed that uh, Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead uh, after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now, this is, this is one of those things where, again, my conscience, my, I, my, you know, my conscience is bound to the word of God. Okay, let me provide two passages from God's word that bear out what I've claimed that Jesus raised himself from the dead. John chapter two, uh, verses 18 through 22. Here we go. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign can you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But the temple he was speaking about was the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus 
had spoken. So in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus himself makes it clear that he was going to raise himself from the grave. Okay, Now you're thinking, well, wait a second. Jesus is the Son of God. Doesn't it say that God raised Jesus from the dead? Who is Jesus? What's, what's our doctrine regarding God? Okay, let me read another passage. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So it is absolutely consistent with biblical Christology and the doctrine of God as it pertains to the doctrine of the Trinity to claim and assert that Jesus Christ raised himself from the grave. How do I know this? Christ himself is my authority for making that claim. We move on. That many of the pre-modern thinkers that you're comfortable with in, in their epistemology and their conclusions were not correct about everything else to explain the world. And that's- okay, now this is interesting. Okay, here's the deal. This is postmodernism. You're you're completely fine with this, but they weren't correct about everything else to explain the world. This is postmodern deconstruction, and what's he what's what's he doing? He's really playing the role of a postmodern deconstructionist. Why? L- listen, those guys were wrong regarding this, 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 and this, and this, and this. So how how can you know with any certainty that they were right about about the narrative that Christ died for our sins? Because I can read the Bible. Well, they were reading the Bible too, so we can't know anything with certainty. You see, that's what's going on here, okay? We're not correct about everything else to explain the world. And that's not a bad thing. They just can't be held oh, responsible no, no. Right. for Listen, it. There, for but, instance, but if, you look at, uh, if you look at the writings of Luther, he has this wonderful uh, thing that he wrote against uh, the Aristotelianism that had sure. crept into the, ca- the but you ca- might not want to take Luther's view of his wife as yours, right? You're not uh, going to let, let me. I'll go, let me give you something that's even more specific. I, I do not want to take Luther's view of the Jews on myself. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that one too. <laughs> going to start yeah, a little closer, don't? You know, but keep this in mind. Here's the deal. Why? Because I hold the sola scriptura which basically teaches that all of us are sinful by nature. Therefore, everyone's teaching, including my own, is to be judged according to the clear teaching of the word of God. He seems to think that I'm following a man-made theology. No, in reality, I seek to be faithful to the text, and I follow a theology that I think rigorously deals with the complexities and the full counsel of the word of God. Is it infallible? No, the theology isn't, but God's word is. Which is why I constantly say, if you can show me from the scriptures where I am wrong, I will repent. Plain and simple, I mean, he was wrong in that sense. So there there are certain skewed, uh, let, let me say, extrapolations from the scriptures, and it's best to stay tight with the story. Okay, now. Yeah, but what I, and, and you know what I would suggest. We only have two minutes here, so I want to I want to throw one more thing in here before we finish, and that is, you don't just read the Bible; you read the Bible through the lens of whatever understandings you've been taught. And now, I'm going to point something out here. This is absolutely correct. The postmoderns have this right, 
However, they overplay this card. Let me explain, okay? Every single one of us is a product of the culture that we grew up in. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are, okay? And this is something that in my theological training, my mentors drilled this into my head. Rod Rosenblatt, Rosebro, what does Lewis say? Read old books. Read old books. And if you read one of the one of the articles we have in the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove is an article by C.S. Lewis on the importance of reading old books. The reason why it's so important to read old books is because you may not even be aware of the lens that you're reading the scriptures through. But by reading old books, by reading books from other cultures, other time periods, other theologians from different times and different places, the one thing that you that that does is it teaches you how to see the own le- the, the lens that you're actually looking at the scripture through. So the the postmoderns are right that we do look at these lenses, but they overplay that hand. It doesn't debilitate us. In fact, it's at, if you read a lot of theology and and works from outside of the current postmodern era, it becomes really easy to see the lens that you're viewing things through because those guys never had the same assumptions that you have. They're dealing with a completely different culture, a different mindset, a different uh, way of approaching things with a different set of cultural uh, questions than ours. And when you start reading that stuff, then all of a sudden the lens that you are looking through the scripture at becomes clear as a bell. Read old books. So the postmoderns are right. We do have lenses that we look through, but they're wrong in basically in their assertion. It's a tacit assertion at this point that somehow that skews your reading of scripture all the time. It doesn't have to. It can actually be overcome and defeated so that you can have a far clearer picture of what's going on in the scripture. For instance, there's a wonderful book out there about uh, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes by Bailey. Oh, that's so fantastic. And that's a great book that helps you see the lenses that you're work, that you're approaching the scriptures through. Get that book if you have not, if you have not got Bailey's book on on, on uh, Jesus through uh, Middle Eastern eyes. Oh man, that is a revolutionary book. And it here's the deal. It shows you the lenses. It's not it's not hard to overcome these lenses. It it just read old books. So in the 5th century and in the 15th century, and you've been taught, set aside any kind of cosmological discussion about the, you know, about the the universe. That's not there. But the truth claims about the afterlife you keep. So, look, I mean, the point that I've been trying to make. But this isn't what I want to do, Chris. Chris, hang on a minute. This isn't what I want to do. What I'm trying to get at is for you to help. I guess he wasn't willing to go down that trail. Okay. Help me understand. How is it that people can speak in such terms that are so full of this vitriol language that feels hateful when I don't think these people are hateful. And, and so, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Bible's going to argue that there's no fear in love and perfect love drives out fear. Okay. Now he's, by the way, he's quoting a passage from first John there. Hang on a second here. Let me find, uh, I got my notes here from his blog post from yesterday. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can find this really quick. First John four. Um, this is how love is made complete among us, so that uh, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Uh, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, my my simple point to Doug Paget here is is that put that verse in 
context within not only the, the fuller context of, of John's epistle, uh, but also in the fuller context of the narrative. You know, when we talk about perfect love casting out fear, what is what are we talking about? And the scriptures are so clear that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. So when we talk about God's love for us, we need to see it in light of how the Bible defines that perfect love. That perfect love is Christ dying for our sins. Or we can we take a look at this at 1 John itself, 1 John chapter 1, for instance, verse 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So even in the very epistle that that Doug is quoting from, okay, the, you, if, when you take the past, the, the verse that he's taken out of context and put it back into the context of the fuller narrative of Scripture and in the fuller nar- in, the, in the fuller context of the epistle that he's quoting, um, then y- what happens is what comes to light is that yes, perfect love does cast out fear, and that perfect love that casts out fear is Christ and His death on the cross for our sins. We continue because fear has to do with punishment, but the one who fears isn't made perfect in love. And so, but this all feels like fear, not, not that what you're saying now, but that other stuff earlier. And that's why I wanted you to paint a picture for me of okay. how is now it that me... people could see it like this and use such language that's so full of, of, uh, of you know, like anger and enemies and all of that in, in a, in a, in a, in a faith that, um, in which Jesus was the victim, not the one running around saying these are the evildoers. How many seconds do I got? Oh, you only got, a, you know, like 60. <laughs> <laughs> Real simple. Two things. Yeah. Jesus Christ himself warned us that, uh, that there will be wolves in sheep clothing. But then we look at the Apostle Paul, who is an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection by the fact that he knocked him off his horse on the way to, on the mm-hmm. road to Damascus. And Paul himself warned us about false teachers. Yeah. And here's what he talks about in Galatians. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly have deserted the one that has yeah. called you by the grace so- of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we yeah. preach, let him be anathema. 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 Yeah. So there's actually... Sure, in, sure. In the, so the Bible does itself, that. So let me ask you... So the idea here is, is that the Bible speaks in these terms, and we have examples from Christ as well as the apostles on the fact that if somebody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one already preached, he is anathema. He's to be he's eternally condemned. It doesn't matter if it was Paul himself or an angel from heaven preaching another gospel. So you have to be on on the alert for other gospels. Okay? And what does Paul say in the pastoral epistles? For instance, in Titus, he talks about those who teach false doctrine need to be rebuked and well it, it, he tells Timothy to rebuke him and rebuke him sharply, right? Okay? So these are things that we are instructed to do by scripture. Now, by today's cultural standards, this is archaic and politically incorrect and not nice. Yet our consciences are bound to the Word of God. We continue. Okay, this, Chris. Speech. So, so let me just ask you, Chris, to Doug, am I that false teacher and that anathema one? Is Doug Paget? I will say absolutely, yes. You, you, the teachings that you bring us are a different gospel. They're a different narrative. And I would say they're a foreign postmodern overlay over the scriptures that are not true to what the scriptures teach, not in its completion, not in its entirety. Now, to some, that's going to sound very unloving, what I said to him. But 
true love tells the truth, even if it's not fashionable to do so. I love Doug Paget. I consider him to be a friend. I love him so much that I, when he asks me straight up a question like that, I am going to speak the truth to him and speak it in love. My hope for him is repentance and the forgiveness of sins from his false teaching. It's not that I hate him. I don't. I love him because my battle is not against flesh and blood. My battle, battle is for Doug Paget and those who are following what I believe is false doctrine that cannot be supported or justified in light of the clear teaching of the Word of God. We, let's finish. And that makes me an anathema and the enemy of God. It means that you're teaching a false gospel. And, and love, I, we would tell you to mm. repent and, and believe the true gospel and preach the true gospel. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you know, commercial's coming. Thanks, buddy. Uh, pr- appreciate it. Sorry, uh, sorry you view it that way. Doug Badger Radio, religious radio that's not quite right on AM 950. So there you go. There was my interview on Doug Padgett's radio program. Would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's the way to email me. And listen, if you're a critic and you disagree with me, I welcome uh, I welcome emails from critics. In fact, I read them often here at Fighting for the Faith. So uh, don't feel like I'm unreasonable and you know, that I've got to, Somehow that uh, if you have a critique that uh, I'm not going to listen to it. That being said, though, don't just take issue with the fact that I've broken a cultural rule. If I have run afoul of the word of God, show me from God's word. That's the real challenge. All right. We are going to switch gears and we're going to go into our sermon review today. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon lecture reviewing service, if you would. Today's sermon is really actually more of a lecture. It's entitled A Beginner's Guide to Postmodernism, or a Primer, if you would, by Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. And this is a fantastic, fantastic lecture that'll give you the overall 10,000-foot arcing view of pre-modernism, modernism, and postmodernism, and the problems with postmodernism and modernism as it relates to biblical Christianity. Phil Johnson, yeah, I gotta tell you, the, the, the more I know about this guy, the more contact I have with him, I just absolutely have got the deepest, deepest professional respect for Phil Johnson and what he does and uh, this is this guy is no slouch. So with that, let's kill the music. Thank you. And what we're going to do, here's uh, Phil Johnson on the Beginner's Guide to Postmodernism. What I want to do this weekend and tonight especially is I'm going to talk about a seismic change in the way people think. And I'm not talking about just people in the church, but people in the world. The entire world is looking at truth a completely different way than our grandparents looked at it. And in fact, truth today is thought of and assessed and evaluated in a completely different way than it was just 20 years ago. Now, some of you are in my generation. I went to school in the 60s and 70s. If you went to college today and you went to, you went to college in my era and then went again today, you'd see it's totally different. 
the way truth is dealt with is entirely different. There have been seismic changes in the way the world looks at truth, the way philosophers talk about truth, and all of that. And I want to sort of explain that to you as simply as possible in layman's terms tonight. And then tomorrow we'll talk about how that is beginning to infect even the evangelical church, so that how even some of the best churches in the country are being tripped up by the new ways of looking at truth. And I want to start with 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, a familiar passage to most of you. Here the Apostle Paul is cautioning Timothy that perilous times would come in the last days. And here is how he described it. Paul writing, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 through 7. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving, unloving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, let me pause and say up to this point, Paul is pretty much describing what human depravity looks like. He says this is times are coming in the last days. The truth is humanity has always had these elements. It's part of our fallen nature. And secular and fallen sinful people always manifest these things. What Paul is telling Timothy is that in the last days, these things will all grow worse. Okay, now this is, I mean, Phil Johnson, no disrespect. I think it actually means a little bit more than this. He's going to say that it's going to get worse in the last days. I think that the gist of what Paul is getting at here from this passage is that it's going to get so bad that it's you're going to see these things manifesting in the church, not just the general culture, because all this stuff has been happening outside of the church for years, but that it's going to get so bad that this is what's going to happen within the church itself. I, I, I understand that it kind of looks really arrogant of me to correct Phil Johnson in the middle of his lecture. I just think that it means more than that, and I wanted to put that in. I'm sure Phil after thinking on it, might agree with me. We continue. And then he says this amazing thing in verse 5, accompanying that, you'll have this outburst of religious fervor when people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. And he says this to Timothy, from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. He's he's basically calling people like this creeps. They're creepy. They creep into houses, he says. He's, He's portraying them as criminals. They creep into houses, people who sneak into houses. Thieves. They're thieves of what? Thieves of truth. That's the idea. It's not that they literally creep into houses and and kidnap women. It's that morally they are on that same level. And what they do with the truth is what a thief who breaks into the house and kidnaps a woman does in, you know, in, in, in uh, regular terms. He's comparing it to that sort of crime. This is a crime against the truth. And then he says this, and this is the key verse, verse seven. This is the verse we're going to start with. And this sort of sums up what we're going to say. They are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That last phrase is so very telling. Always learning 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is a perfect description of the times in which we live, number one. But think about it this way. That is also a perfect description of the course of secular human philosophy. If you study the history of philosophy, here's what you'll see. Philosophy as a discipline is a long history, uh, it's a long series of attempts by unbelieving men to define truth apart from God. And every philosophical system in the history of humanity that has tried to explain truth without reference to God has failed. Every one of them. In fact, here's how I'm, I told Ray I'm editing this book, and John MacArthur's dealing with some of these things in this book. The book is called The Truth War. He's talking about the, the war against the truth that really began in the garden when Satan said to Eve, did God really say that? Questioning the authority of God's word, questioning what God's word actually says, that was the beginning of the war against truth. And it's gone on throughout the history of humanity. Here's what John MacArthur says about the process of philosophy. He says, elaborate systems of thought have been proposed and methodically debunked one after another, like a long chain in which every previous link is broken. For thousands of years, the very very best of human philosophies have all utterly failed to account for truth apart from God. And that's true, by the way. And in our lifetime, just in the past 20 years, a remarkable thing has happened. Western philosophy and academic thinkers have basically begun to realize that you cannot have the concept of truth You can't have a coherent idea of truth and what it is apart from God. They have been always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But rather than recognizing that if you want truth, you've got to have God with it, what the secular mind has done is given up the search for truth altogether. And for for perhaps the first time ever in human history... The dominant idea that is driving the thinking of secular minds today is the idea that if truth exists somewhere, we cannot know it for sure. We just can't know what the truth is. Nobody can know for sure what the truth is. That is the dominant idea today, and it's been embraced almost universally in the secular world. And our entire society is beginning to embrace the idea that truth really doesn't matter much anyway. We've witnessed a major transition in a, in, a, in a whole new phase of intellectual human history just within our lifetimes, just within the past 20 years. And it happened so quickly and so imperceptibly that while I'm sure you've all noticed that things have changed in the past 20 years and changed significantly, you may not yet be aware of why or what is behind this thinking. The new phase in the history of human thought is, has been labeled postmodernism. And it is a classic example of the very thing the Apostle Paul is describing when he writes to Timothy in that text I read. Postmodern philosophers are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that is practically the very way any committed postmodernist would describe his own way of thinking. He would tell you that it's a good and beneficial way of looking at the quest for human knowledge, that we can always learn things, but we can never really arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That is the postmodern mindset. 
And in fact, the postmodernist would say, that's the way it's supposed to be, that's good, that's the way you should think of the quest for truth. We're never supposed to think that we've come to the knowledge of the truth, and that's not even a desirable goal for the postmodernist. That's what the idea that drives the times in which we live. Now, most of you by now have probably heard the term postmodernism in other contexts. I know it's on the, on the flyer that you got when you came. You know that's what we're talking about tonight. Um, but I'm guessing you've heard that term here and there before. And if you are in any generation older than mine, that if you grew up in the church, you probably grew up hearing about modernism. Not postmodernism, but modernism. And if so, if you grew up in the church, that word modernism probably has a very sinister ring to it. And well, it should, because from about 1850 until less than 20 years ago, modernism was the main secular threat to Christianity, to a biblical worldview. Modernism was supposedly scientific and rational and opposed to the idea of anything supernatural. It was inherently anti-Christian. Naturally, modernism didn't go well with the idea of Christianity because it was anti-supernatural. And if you grew up in an evangelical church, your spiritual fathers and grandfathers spent their lives fighting modernism in the church. And, and they should have, because modernism was a great danger. It ravaged the Western world in the 20th century. It, uh, it, it tore organized Christianity apart. It destroyed most of the mainstream Protestant denominations in America. Modernism is the reason the mainstream denominations all went liberal between the 1920s and the 1970s. But you know what? Modernism is now dead. Even in the majority of the secular academic environments, modernism has not been the prevailing worldview since the fall of the Berlin Wall. We live in a postmodern culture now. And if you were to go to college today in most secular universities, you would be taught by professors who are almost completely and totally postmodernists, not modernists anymore. Now, that sounds like good news for the church, doesn't it? Because if modernism was evil and modernism is dead, shouldn't we rejoice about that? I mean, shouldn't we be glad for whatever way of thinking takes the place of modernism? And that's how a lot of people in the church today think. And as a result, postmodernism is quickly moving into churches and taking over. We'll talk about this in detail tomorrow, and I'll show you how. But let me just say this. Last November, two years ago in November, Christianity Today featured a cover article titled The Emergent Mystique. It was about this movement called the uh, Emerging Church, and it describes how postmodernism is affecting the church. And this is the latest fashion in cultural relevance. It's beyond the seeker-sensitive churches. It's beyond what they were doing at Willow Creek and, uh, and Saddleback ten years ago. This goes beyond this. It's an attempt to be culturally relevant to the next generation, to the postmodern generation. And if you have never heard that expression, the emerging church, you will hear it. You'll be hearing about it a lot because it's going to dominate the conversation in the evangelical movement for at least the next 10 years. The emergent church is simply the nickname for a movement that's trying to blend Christianity with postmodernism. That's the whole agenda of the movement. Now, I want to be as clear and as brutally honest with you 
as possible right from the get-go. I don't want you to have any misunderstanding about where I stand. I am convinced that postmodernism is inherently incompatible with biblical Christianity. And in fact, the most essential elements of postmodernism are hostile to the fundamental truth claims of Scripture. And for that reason, I would argue that a, a postmodern mindset involves some positively sinful ways of thinking. Now, if you do any reading on church growth philosophy, or even if you just try to stay abreast, as I know Ray does, and tries to keep those of you who are part of this congregation up to date on what is popular in the evangelical world, you, you may already realize that there are a number of pastors and church leaders out there who are sending the message that they think the church needs to adapt to postmodernism, to embrace postmodernism, and, and to absorb postmodern style and language in order to reach a postmodern generation. Now, I, and I am convinced that the error in that approach is no different from the error 150 years ago uh, of those people who tried to devise a modernist brand of Christianity in order to reach the modern world. It's the same kind of mentality. The heart of biblical and Christian truth will be destroyed in the process. Now, I, I want to explain to you what modernism is, and I want to explain to you what postmodernism is, so you can keep all of this straight. I'll try to be as simple as possible. Remember, modernism was inherently anti-Christian, anti-supernatural. It represented the wholesale rejection of some vital biblical truths. And that's why, even though lots of people tried, and they tried for years, it proved totally impossible to blend biblical Christianity with modernism. Couldn't be done. Nobody ever did it. There were many churches and many denominations that tried, and all of them died. They went liberal and died. And the evangelical leaders who are our spiritual forefathers, men like Spurgeon and J. Gresham Machen and B.B. Warfield, they were a handful of leaders in the church who saw clearly from the outset that modernism was incompatible with biblical truth and they devoted their lives to fighting the modernist trend. But in exactly the same way, postmodernists are doing the same thing with Christianity today. The postmodernist way of looking at the world is fundamentally anti-Christian. And if anything, I would say postmodernism is worse than modernism was. And I want to show... Now, this is an important point he's making, and I agree with him. The tenets of postmodernism are incompatible with Christianity, and postmodernism at its core is anti-Christian. You cannot come up with a postmodern version of Christianity because postmodernism undermines the entire authority of Scripture itself. show you why. Both modernism and postmodernism are exactly the kinds of evil ideology the Apostle Paul described in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, where he spoke of our spiritual warfare as Christians this way. He said, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing, or pretension is the, is the Greek word, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, listen to what Paul is saying there. He is telling us that spiritual warfare, it's not a matter of saying bad things to demons or whatever. Spiritual warfare is an ideological battle. 
Yes, it's true, our main enemies are principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, purveyors of spiritual wickedness in high places and that sort of thing. But what Paul is saying here is that the battle is an ideological one. It's not a mystical one. We don't fight with swords and guns. That's what he means when he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But he goes on to say what our weapon is. He says we fight with the truth and specifically the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So it's a war over truth and spiritual warfare. Okay, now notice here. All of this warfare language, where did Phil get it from? From the biblical text itself. And I hope you understand this. I know many of you do if you've sat under raised teaching for any length of time. Spiritual warfare is not waged by shouting verbal rebukes at evil spirits or by using spoken incantations that invoke the blood of Christ or, or by any other magical or superstitious nonsense. That's not what Paul is talking about here. You know, demons are not like vampires that can be chased away with the sign of the cross. But real spiritual warfare, as Paul is describing it here, it requires us to refute false ideas with the truth. That's why all of this is about ideologies and, and, and arguments, he says, and pretensions and bringing every thought into captivity. He's talking about ideas. And so spiritual warfare, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 10, involves the tearing down of ideological strongholds and false belief systems. That's what has the people of this world in captivity. And so that's what we're fighting against. It's the systems of ideas. The warfare is not against people. It's against ideas. And postmodernism is one of those unbiblical ideologies, one of those belief systems that we must fight against. And I want to try to explain in a simple way why I think that's true, in a way that we can all understand And we'll start by trying to get a broad, general idea of what this term postmodernism refers to, what it means. And I wonder, just out of curiosity, is there anyone here who has never heard anything at all about postmodernism before you came to this conference? Just a couple of you. See, I'm telling you, this is an important idea. You hear about it all the time. It seems to me like I hear about it all the time, even on the secular news and all of that, is a word that started to come into vogue in the mid-1980s. You never heard it before around 1985, but today it's everywhere. It's used to describe many things, but most often an approach to art and literature. It's used in a philosophical sense. It's sometimes used by Christians in a very positive way, as if this new way of thinking, postmodernism, had all kinds of wonderful potential for the church. And again, it is a reaction to modernism, which we all know was evil. So why would I tell you it's something dangerous? Here's why. First of all, postmodernism is, is rooted in the belief that if truth exists out there somewhere, we can't possibly know it in any true, certain, objective sense. I would call that the central idea of postmodernism. You'll sometimes hear critics uh, say that postmodernists, they'll define it this way, a postmodernist is somebody who doesn't believe in absolutes. That's close, but that's not quite true. In practical terms, they don't believe in absolutes. But no knowledgeable postmodernist would ever tell you he's sure that no absolutes exist because it's unpostmodern to be unsure about anything. And if you say 
absolutely that no absolutes exist. You've just made an absolute statement. So they don't even say that. What they say is that they just don't want to be too dogmatic or too certain about anything. And so everything is left nebulous. There are, there are no practical absolutes, no absolutes that we can know absolutely, no truths that we can know with any kind of certainty. And postmodernists believe reality itself is just a subjective perception of each individual mind. Objectivity is an illusion. And so what seems real to you isn't necessarily the same thing that seems real to me. We all perceive reality different. And so, according to the postmodernists, we all should just agree up front that none of us is going to ever insist that the other person is wrong. And instead, we have to try to be as tolerant of everyone else as possible. And that is why tolerance and diversity have become the primary virtues in Western society. I'm sure you've noticed that. Postmodernism has, in effect, made tolerance the last remaining moral virtue. Everything else is supposed to be relative, and everything else is completely flexible. But you're never supposed to say someone else's belief systems are wrong. That is the hallmark of postmodern thinking. You see it expressed a thousand ways every night on the evening news. That's why juries suddenly seem unable to find anyone guilty of anything because if you get an ardent postmodernist on a jury, in his opinion, nothing is ever beyond a reasonable doubt. You see why that works. And in fact, that is another one of postmodernism's outstanding features. Postmodernists are suspicious of every truth claim that is made with any kind of certainty or authority. And in fact, if you want to make a committed postmodernist really angry, all you have to do is believe something with too much conviction. Postmodernists hate it whenever anybody is sure about what he believes. Now, all of those things are classic characteristics of postmodern thought. Here are some other ways of saying the same thing. Postmodernism generally prefers subjectivity to objectivity and ambiguity over clarity. Postmodernists are skeptical of logic, and they also distrust history. They question every form of dogmatism. And postmodernists especially don't like authoritative definitions. If you try to define something clearly, they will nitpick endlessly over every ambiguity, every exception to the rule, every supposed paradox that challenges whatever definition you've given. They will exploit every generalization to make it seem like it's absurd. They want to blur the line on every dichotomy. And all of that is related to postmodernism's essential relativism. Nothing is certain. Nothing is clear. Nothing is you could be too dogmatic about. All of that is it's very relativist. And if you start, you can see why that is. If you start with the notion that reality is perceived differently by everyone and we're not supposed to insist on seeing things alike, then the idea of definitions is a threat to that perspective. But here's the bottom line. Here is a simple, succinct way to describe the main characteristic of postmodernism, and it's this. If you want to take this down, I'll repeat it twice. 
Postmodernism is generally hostile to any worldview that makes a universal truth claim. Postmodernism is hostile to every worldview that makes a universal truth claim. And in fact, it's really fair to say that the whole idea of a worldview, which by that we mean a comprehensive philosophy of life, that idea is very unpostmodern. Postmodernism might be defined in a nutshell as the belief that no single worldview offers a universally and objectively true perspective on all of life and reality. So, in other words, bottom line for the postmodernism, postmodernist is nobody's got anything right. Nobody really knows anything for sure. And so postmodern Now this is exactly why McLaren would make such a statement like no one has arrived at orthodoxy, no one has got it right yet. No one has got orthodoxy correct yet. That's postmodernism in action. And that is a claim contrary to the epistemology of Christianity, uh, of what the Christian truth claim is. Not compatible. Postmodernism is not compatible with Christianity. Not in its fundamental core ideas regarding truth and knowledge. Postmodernism boils down to this. It's a kind of systematic skepticism. It's not a constructive way of thinking. It's deconstructive. And in fact, the postmodern hermeneutic on all of life and literature is known by that technical name, deconstructionism. And if you have taken a college course in literature at any point since 1985, I know you are familiar with that term, deconstructionism, because that's what they're teaching in English literature these days. It speaks of an approach to handling texts, literature, even the text of scripture, whatever, handling the text in a way that aims at unraveling the objective meaning rather than trying to understand the meaning. The process of deconstruction involves questioning every assumption, attacking every inconsistency, exploiting every ambiguity, and basically picking apart the text. Notice that was what Paget was doing with me during my radio interview. He was trying to pick everything apart, find the inconsistencies and all that kind of stuff. He's in, he was engaging in postmodern deconstructionism. He's a master at it. Now, those things are all fine and necessary if your goal is to understand. But if your only goal is to deconstruct, then skepticism becomes downright dangerous. And yet that is the whole point of the postmodernist exercise. By deconstructing words and meanings and even the text of Scripture, the postmodernist is not trying to understand, and he's not trying to express any clear perspective of his own. Because he doesn't want, ultimately, he does not want to confirm or deny anything. No true postmodernist would ever deliberately argue that any given proposition is clearly right or clearly wrong. That's not the point of the exercise. The only goals are to eliminate certainty, to question authority, to obliterate clarity, and to undermine the very notion of objective truth. And in fact, that you could say is the whole postmodernist agenda. And if we have time permits, we'll come back for a look at each of those four uh, 
ideas that are hostile to postmodernism. Objectivity, clarity, authority, certainty. But if you think about it, those are all hallmarks of Christianity, aren't they? We believe in objective truth. We believe that the truth can be and has been given to us clearly by God. So we believe in clarity. It's authoritative. So we believe in authority. And it is certain. So we believe in certainty. All of that is totally against the postmodern agenda. Now, it might help you to understand postmodernism by seeing how it arose. It is possible to break down all the history of Western thought and literature into three broad periods. And what I want to do, I hope you've got a pencil and some room on your note paper, because I want to help you draw a small little chart. Okay, this is where you need to take notes. This chart is brilliant, and it's really important that you take this one down. Because this will get to the heart of the matter of what I was referring back to in my interview on Doug Paget's program. That you can take with you to show you some of the things that we are going to be talking about. It And what you need to do here is write, draw a grid with nine slots in it. So basically it's a tic-tac-toe grid. Make it big enough to write in, this, in the boxes. But draw a tic-tac-toe grid on your paper. And uh, so you have nine boxes, three columns, three rows. And each of the columns will represent one major period, one of the three major periods of Western thought. And the first one we will call pre-modern. So you can write that above the leftmost column in your grid. Pre-modern. Label that column pre-modern. Don't put it in the box, but above it. Pre-modern. And this era would is a big one. It would extend from the birth of science and philosophy in, in ancient Greek culture until the age of the Enlightenment. Roughly from the time of Thales in ancient Greek to the French Revolution. That means the pre-modern era of Western intellectual history covers almost 2,500 years. That's a long time for people to think this way, but this is how, this is how people thought for 2,500 years. I'm going to explain it to you. Now obviously over that span of time, 2,500 years, multitudes of human philosophies and various worldviews Arose. You have everything in the philosophical world from Plato's Republic to John Locke's empiricism. All of it falls in the pre-modern era. And everything in the religious world from Greek mythology to the paganism of the Druids and more, there were multitudes of philosophies and religions that flourished in the pre-modern era, but they all had three important things in common, and that's what you're going to fill in this column with these boxes. First... They believed in objective, ultimate truth. And so you can write that in the left, top left-hand corner of your tic-tac-toe grid. Objective, ultimate truth. Objective, ultimate truth. While you're writing, let me explain. Pre-modern people believed that whatever was ultimately true was objectively and transcendentally true, so that the same standard of ultimate truth was assumed to be true for everybody. If it's true, it's not just true for you, it's true for all of us. If it's really true. They believed that there was an objective reality that is true for the whole universe. And that that reality is in some sense capable of being known, apprehended, and perceived. And virtually all pre-modern worldviews made that assumption. There's truth out there. Objective truth and we can know it. Second... In the pre-modern world, virtually all belief systems made room for the supernatural. And so in the center row of that left-hand column, write the word supernatural. 
That's easy. Supernatural. Left-hand center box. Pre-modern people were certain that the limits of reality were not defined by the visible material world. There was an almost universal belief in the supernatural realm. And even though various belief systems didn't necessarily agree with one another on what the supernatural realm was really like, they almost universally accepted the reality of the supernatural. There were exceptions, obviously. You had the Sadducees who seemed flaky on that and some others. But for the most part, they all agreed that there's some supernatural realm. Now, third, in the pre-modern world, it was normally assumed that the foundation for ultimate truth was supernatural. All authority was derived from God or the gods or the spirit world. And so in the bottom row of your left-hand column, write authority from God. Authority came from God. And another way of saying that is that along with the idea of ultimate truth, there was always an ultimate authority. Someone or something was the ultimate power in the universe. And that's, by the way, why they saw the, the universe as a universe and not a multiverse. And the ultimate authority in the universe was nearly always assumed to dwell in the supernatural realm. God or pagan gods or unseen spirits or whatever. And that was how people in the pre-modern world saw things. They accepted without question the ideas of ultimate truth, supernaturalism, and a single, central, universal, supreme authority. Those were non-negotiable and almost never challenged concepts in the pre-modern world. They were virtually universal presuppositions. These are the foundations of human thought. But at the dawn of the Enlightenment, about the same time as the French Revolution, there was a massive paradigm shift in Western thought. And the world entered the so-called modern era. Here's where modernism comes in. And so atop that center column, above the chart, write the label modern, the modern era. You might call this era the age of reason, after the title of a famous book by Thomas Paine, in 19, who published that in 1794. And that book more or less summed up the spirit of the modern era. And Thomas Paine was kind of the midwife who helped birth modernity or modern thought. The age of reason, both the book and the idea, was a kind of a overt attack on biblical Christianity. And it elevated science and human reason to the position of highest authority. That was the distinctive of the modern mind. Now, on point one, in the top center box, modern thinkers were in complete agreement with pre-modern thinkers. They assumed the necessity of objective, ultimate, universal truth. So you can write that in the top center box of your grid, objective, ultimate truth. There was no change in thinking there. Moderns agreed with the pre-moderns that whatever was really true was true in an objective sense. So that ultimate truth was the same for everybody. If you know the truth, then the truth you know applies to me as well, if it's true. It was universal. And on point two, you have now a stark contrast to pre-modern thought. The modern mind was skeptical, dubious, cynical, unbelieving when it came to the supernatural. And so you can write in the center box of your tic-tac-toe grid, anti-supernatural, anti-supernatural. 
Now, let me be clear here. Modern philosophies didn't necessarily deny everything supernatural, but they considered supernatural things irrelevant in the pursuit of truth. So that modern thinkers said ultimate truth, universal truth, knowledge can only be gained by scientific and rational means. And so belief in supernatural realities and God and, and spiritual things, divine revelation, all of that was began to be regarded as superstitious and outmoded. One author I read says this, while many Enlightenment thinkers didn't completely reject belief in God, they banished him to the remotest realm of the transcendent. If God did exist, he was neither concerned nor involved with his creation. Of course, that's a description of deism, and Thomas Paine and many of the people of his era were deists. They believed that if God exists, he created the world and then left it to itself. So he's not transcendent. He doesn't really exist. I mean, he doesn't really, he doesn't really um, dwell in the realm of his creation. And maybe a better way to say it would be this. Distrust in the Almighty was virtually the hallmark of modern thought. And so on that point, belief in the supernatural, modern thought was a dramatic departure from pre-modern thinking. On point three, the issue of authority, the ground and the foundation of truth, modern thought here partly retained and partly rejected the pre-modern philosophy. Remember, pre-moderns believe that truth is grounded in supernatural authority. Modern minds retained the notion of an ultimate central authority, but obviously they denied that the supreme authority was God or anything supernatural. And so modernity placed a kind of moratorium on God as the foundation of knowledge. And instead, science and human reason became the supreme authorities. And so in the center box, bottom, center bottom box on your grid, write this. Authority, this will be the longest label you have to write. Authority from science and human reason. Authority from science and human reason. Now, I hope you see the pattern of thought here. The modern world retained the notion of objective, universal truths, but they jettisoned the notion of supernatural reality, or at least the authority of it, and therefore they said the only authoritative truths are those that can be established by science or reason. Now, that's modern thinking. That was what we mean by modernism. And obviously, much of the world, even today, does still operate on modern assumptions. But modernism as a worldview failed badly. And frankly, people who have retained the modern mindset philosophically are behind the times today. This is the age of reason, the modern era, is essentially over in, in the academic and philosophical world. And modernity is now beginning to die even in popular society. The whole world, with the exception of some societies that are dominated by Islamic fundamentalists, the whole world is becoming more and more postmodern at a very rapid rate. And by the way, the postmodernization of the rest of us is one of the reasons Islamic fundamentalists are so angry. Because uh, 
And we don't sympathize at all with their terrorist response to the secularization and the postmodernization of Western society. But I hope you can see by the time we're done why postmodernism actually poses a very real threat to any religion that is based on truth that we believe to be revealed by God. Now, you might think that's an argument against a strong view of divine revelation. Not at all. Modernism rejected revelation completely, and the results of modernism were even more violent and more destructive than Islamic terrorism. Postmodern news analysts today often blame religion and pre-modern ideas for the violence of uh, the Islamic fundamentalists, but the truth is the modern mind was more violent by far. The main results of Western thought, modern thought, uh, Western thought during the modern era were these massive ideologies with centralized authoritarian control driven by utopian promises. So you had fascism, communism, socialism, Marxism, Nazism, and a whole bunch of other 20th century social experiments that all had their roots in modernism, starting with Darwinism, and by the way, culminating in liberal theology. All of these were modern ideas. All of them were fundamentally atheistic, humanistic, rationalistic systems. All of them became tyrannical and oppressive, and all of them failed, and they failed in dramatic ways. After two world wars, think about the history of the 20th century, which is the most violent century in the history of humanity. More people died in wars and terrorism and all that stuff in the 20th century than any preceding Century, And it's because modernism led to all of these ideologies that were tyrannical and violent. And after all of that mess and the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the modern era was more or less declared dead by philosophers and artists and college professors, and the postmodern era had begun already. And so above the right-hand column on your chart, write postmodern, postmodern. Now, as I said, the pre-modern era lasted some two, uh, 2,500 years, two and a half millennia pre-modern thought. The modern era, counted up, lasted less than 250 years, and if the pace of these worldly paradigm shifts keeps up, and I think it might, the postmodern era could be over 25 years from now. It might be less than a decade even from now. I don't know what will replace it. I, people often ask me, what's, what's the course of this? What's next? I don't know. I could probably make a fortune if I could th foresee it, think it up. But I, I guarantee you this, as long as secular minds are in control of it, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, as Second Timothy 3.13 says. Secular philosophy never gets better. It always gets worse. But meanwhile... It behooves us to understand the times in which we live. And we, we all need to do everything we can as Christians to tear down the strongholds of false ideologies. That's what spiritual warfare is about. And it's all of our duty. It's not just Ray Hammond's duty. It's duty that falls on all of our shoulders. And so we need to understand the postmodern moment so we, that we can be aware of the dangers it presents and resist them, at least as far as the church is concerned. 
Postmodernism is a radical reaction to the failure of modernism. And so postmodernism rejects virtually every distinctive of modernism, starting with the, uh, with the idea that truth can be objectively known. So look at the chart you're making. Remember, pre-moderns and modern thinkers both assumed that there is a standard, universal, single standard of ultimate truth that is objectively knowable. Postmodernists are not too sure that objective truth even exists, but they are sure that if it does exist... It can't be known. And so they reject the first distinctive of both pre-modern and modern thought. And so in the top right-hand corner of your grid, write, objective ultimate truth is unknowable. Objective ultimate truth is unknowable. Now, as for point two, remember that pre-moderns assumed the existence of a supernatural reality, and modernists either rejected or ignored everything supernatural, postmoderns are willing to accept supernaturalism, but they have stripped the supernatural of every idea of authority. And so the supernaturalism of postmodernism is a mystical supernaturalism, where each individual determines reality by whatever he perceives. And so in the middle right-hand box... This is exactly why postmoderns in the church embrace contemplative spirituality and mysticism, uh, monastic mysticism. That, they, that way they can have these spiritual experiences, but they're not authoritative like, you know, you know, you know the Bible box of your grid, you can write mystical, mystical, M-Y-S-T-I-C-A-L. Postmodernists don't apprehend spiritual realities by authoritative revelation. They do it by personal experience, feelings, and other subjective means. Because since objective truth is unknowable, the only way to interpret any kind of reality, including God, is by personal experience. And in other words, since Reality is ultimately a construct of the subjective mind. Even God can be whatever you perceive him to be. That's how a postmodernist thinks. And so naturally on the third point, the issue of authority, postmodernists disagree with both pre-modernists and modernists, and they say there is no single central authority, supernatural or otherwise. And in a world that is completely subjective... Just think about it. The idea of authority doesn't fit. And so in the bottom right-hand box of your grid, you can write no ultimate authority. No ultimate authority. But the idea really is that each person is the ultimate authority for himself. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Postmodern religions are trying to construct God without authority. That's the whole idea here. The God of postmodernism is a soft pliable, lenient, friendly, Mr. Rogers neighborhood type guy. Pure love without any authority. And virtually all postmodern varieties of religion have this notion of God to one degree or another. 
By the way, I'll just make this comment for, for those who are interested in philosophy and all that. You can see perhaps why the climate of postmodernism is one of the things that has made the rise of open theism so popular. Right? You'll understand this. Open theism, which is a doctrine that strips God of his sovereignty and his authority and even his foreknowledge so that God doesn't even know how things are going to come out in open theism. That is perfectly suited for a postmodern age. That's why it's so popular today. And so here you have, if you filled these out, you have a chart that shows in broad terms how postmodernism compares to earlier ways of thinking. And this should give you a pretty good idea of where postmodernism collides with Christianity. If you look at your chart, in each of the three areas we have listed, postmodernism is radically at odds with historic and biblical Christianity. And yet... There are dozens of, uh, maybe hundreds of influential voices in the evangelical movement. People who are writing for Christianity Today. People who make important decisions in evangelical schools and organizations. Pollsters, church growth experts, evangelical organizations, and, and all of this sort of stuff. Many people insisting that unless... We as Christians devise a new form of Christianity that is more acceptable to the postmodern mind. We're going to lose the current generation. You hear that all the time. Now let me be clear. I do believe it is our duty as Christians to, to understand the spirit of the age in which we live and minister. Obviously I disagree with people who are willing to hide their heads in the sand and, and ignore the spiritual and intellectual climate of our, of our time or else I wouldn't be dealing with this subject at all. But it's one thing to understand the spirit of the age and quite another thing to adapt to it. The truth is, and look at your chart again. Christianity doesn't fit into any of these categories. It is neither pre-modern, modern, nor post-modern. Biblical Christianity stood against all the superstitions and the human philosophies of the pre-modern era. Authentic Christianity also opposed the rationalism and the humanism of the modern era. And we must also stand against the evils of post-modern thought. In the words of the Apostle Paul, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And Christ is against all these human philosophies. Worldly philosophies have always been hostile to the Christian faith. And the church is called and commanded to stand apart from worldly philosophy and confront it, not embrace it, embrace it and, and try to adapt our message to suit whatever philosophy is popular. The gospel stands against every human worldview and every human philosophy, and that is more true than ever in the postmodern era. If you notice the trend in your chart, you can see that secular thought has become progressively more hostile to Christianity as time goes by. The world is not becoming more compatible with the Christian faith. And we can't adapt Christianity to fit. And yet, as I said, there are hundreds, thousands of Christians today, some even calling themselves evangelicals, who are advocating the development of postmodern versions of Christianity. Christianity Today magazine has begun to kind of act as the cheerleader for efforts like that. And uh, we'll look at tomorrow that issue I talked about that 
had the article on the emerging church. But it, they have whitewashed virtually all the major challenges postmodernism poses to Christianity. Now, we're running out of time, so I want to sum this up for you. There are really four areas where postmodernism challenges the heart of Christianity. I named them earlier. I want to give them to you now with time for you just to write them down. The first is objectivity. Objectivity. Authentic Christianity has always been concerned with objective truth, history, propositional truth claims, facts, doctrine. If you do away with the objective, historic reality of the bodily resurrection of Christ, for example, according to the Apostle Paul, you have destroyed the very heart of the Christian faith. All of Christianity, Paul says, depends on this objective fact, this historical fact, of the resurrection of Christ. And he uses, in 1 Corinthians 15, propositions and syllogisms, logic, to make that argument. If then, if then, he says. That's one of the hallmarks of true Christianity. Here's a second. Clarity. Clarity. I mentioned the postmodernists don't like definitions and dichotomies. And obviously, if everything is subjective and everything is relative and everything is subject to individual opinion... Every text, every statement, every expression has an endless number of possible interpretations. Nothing really means anything. And I don't really have time to delve into this fully tonight, but this is how postmodernism has influenced the secular philosophical world and academic world. They deny that anything is ever really cut and dried. And so they've rewritten history. They've turned moral values upside down. Suddenly, homosexuality is no longer considered a disorder, but homophobia is. It's all backwards. So Columbus is one of the biggest villains in what... Oh, man, that is so true. Yeah, homosexuality is not a disorder, but if you think homosexuality is a sin, that's a disorder. Yep, that's one of the signs of the times. Western history, and Che Guevara is one of the greatest heroes. And in fact, history itself, according to the postmodernists, needs to be totally retold because it's too dominated by European white males. So let's retell the story in a different way. Now, that, that's what's happening in secular, that's just a statement of fact of what's happening in secular universities. But think about this. If you apply that hermeneutic to Scripture... You can imagine what the result is going to be. If you start by rejecting objective meaning, the first victim is clarity. Coherence becomes impossible. Nothing can ever really be clear what it means. And, of course, your theology then becomes as flexible as the meaning of any word. Doctrinal precision becomes impossible in the postmodern world. But as far as the postmodern Christian is concerned, that's okay. Because doctrinal precision isn't really desirable. Now, I know you've run into people who think like that. Let me, let me move through this quickly. I'm skipping some stuff here. Authority, number three. Authority. You can already tell, I think, that postmodernists have a general distrust of and contempt for authority. They despise dogmatism. They portray the notion of a comprehensive worldview as inherently oppressive. They invariably champion whatever's marginal, and they want to dethrone or, or decentralize whatever or whoever is in power at the moment. Probably the 
loudest and uh, most influential voice in Christianity for postmodernizing evangelicalism is a, an author named Brian McLaren. He's written about four books now that have been bestsellers over the past five years. He cranks them out quickly. He's become very, very influential. Lots of people follow him. And in his postmodern brand of Christianity, he starts by explicitly eliminating Scripture as a foundation. Now, this is not a way-out liberal. This is a man who's considered an evangelical and who speaks at Dallas Seminary. And here's what he says, page 52 of his book, He says this, the whole notion of authority, as so many people conceive it, is a thoroughly modern idea. He's saying it's a fairly recent idea. It's not not really a biblical idea. 2 Timothy 3.16 does not say all Scripture is inspired by God and is authoritative. It says Scripture is inspired and useful. Now notice how he's trying to eliminate the idea of authority from Scripture. Now... What do you think of that? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures are given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, rebuke, and instruction in righteousness. It seems to me that Paul's whole point is that scripture is useful, first of all, because it's true. And it's true because it speaks with the authority of God himself. So when the scriptures speak, it's with God's personal authority. That's what the Bible itself claims. That is the historic Christian worldview. It's not a modern idea. It's not even a pre-modern idea. It's a biblical idea, but it's totally un-postmodern. And so postmodernism is hostile to objectivity, clarity, and authority. The final victim of the postmodern onslaught is one of the most important pillars in the Christian worldview, and it's this, certainty. Certainty. In both the pre-modern and the modern eras, the debate was over which worldview is true. Christians argued that the Bible was true and all other worldviews were false. In the postmodern era, the argument has changed because postmodernists attack every worldview that claims to be true. There's no room for certainty. Dogmatism is a greater transgression in the postmodern era than irrationality or incoherence. And that's why secular postmodernists are equally hostile to dogmatic atheism and biblical Christianity. Theological modernism to a postmodernist is no better and no worse than evangelicalism. Both are oppressive because both claim to be right. And that's the big transition, tra- transgression. What has become intolerable is certainty. Because postmodernists think certainty is a kind of intolerance. And that perspective comes through loud and clear in the opening pages of Brian McLaren's book, A Different Kind of Christian. And in the introduction, he tears into preachers who have the audacity to think Scripture tells them anything they can know for sure. Ray, you'll love this. Listen to what he says about preachers who preach on the radio. He says, and I'm quoting from him, I drive my car and listen to the Christian radio station, something my wife tells me I should stop doing because it only gets me upset. 
He says, there I hear preacher after preacher, so absolutely sure of his bomb-proof and foolproof biblical interpretations. And the more sure he seems, the less I find myself wanting to be a Christian. Because on this side of the microphone, the answers aren't that clear. Life isn't that simple, and nothing is sure, unquote. Wow. That's a preacher telling you that. Listen to some of these quotations from that Christianity Today article on the emergent church. We'll look at this in more detail tomorrow, but let me just give you some preliminary quotations. This is what the postmodernist leaders of the emerging church movement are saying. Notice how many times the mystery motif is repeated in that Christianity Today article. Quote, this is from Rob Bell, the pastor of a large postmodernist congregation in Grand Rapids. He says, we want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. His wife says this, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now, she says, I have no idea what most of it means. Christianity Today, their author says this, they are looking for a faith that is colorful enough for their culturally savvy friends, deep enough for mystery, big enough for their own doubts. And the writer of the article says, quote, We are entering post-modernity, an as yet ill-defined borderland in which modern values like objectivity, analysis, and control will become less compelling. They are superseded by postmodern values like mystery and wonder and ambiguity. And then it says this, the real significance of Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christian, may not be its answers, but its openness to questions. And then they quote Brian McLaren himself. He says, I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. None of us has arrived at orthodoxy. Now that's the spirit of postmodernism. As I said earlier, it is inherently skeptical, cynical, suspicious of every truth claim, and so naturally postmodernism has no room for certainty, even on the things that really matter. But the writer in the article of... Uh, Christianity Today uh, doesn't think that's a problem. And in fact, the whole article in CT was written with a tone of hand-wringing anxiety about how much out of step the church is with the times in which we live because so many churches present truth as something that's sure and certain and clear. Now, I'm going to put in a link up to that article. It's entitled The Emergent Mystique from Christianity Today. I'm going to put a link up to that at the uh, Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove if you'd like to read it. And we can't do that and get by with it in the postmodern era. That's what Christianity Today is saying. We hope you've enjoyed this message from our... So there you go. That is Phil Johnson's lecture on a beginner's guide to postmodernism. And I got to tell you, that thing is brilliant, and it shows what the fundamental problems here are. The Here's the big issue, is that a group of people who is interested in marketing the church in a seeker-driven way basically um, it basically thought that they could market the church to post-modern culture by adopting their ideas, their buzz terms, and all that kind of stuff, and adapting Christianity to the uh, to post-modernity. The problem is, is that Christianity is not compatible with postmodernity, and as a result of it, now we've got a problem. We've got leaders like Brian McLaren and others running around <clears throat> who have in their fundamental 
way of thinking, not belief, not trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, not orthodoxy, but complete doubt and skepticism regarding the authority of Scripture, regarding the doctrines of Scripture. And as a result of it, uh, they they are now literally infecting other people within the visible church with this inherent skepticism that is incompatible with Christianity, plain and simple. So what's the solution? Preach the truth and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what we're called to do. And proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and call postmodern people, whether they claim to be Christian or not, to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This is not control. This is not oppression. This is doing what Christ has called us to do. So what do you think? <clears throat> Would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Of course, uh, if you'd like to support the program, you can do so. Um, uh, in fact, Fighting for the Faith exists purely in, off of the uh, generous financial contributions of our listeners. And right now in the month of January, we have an anonymous donor who, if you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew in the month of January, he's going to take your January dues and he's going to triple it. That's right. So your six and ninety-five gets multiplied times three, and uh, it, which is a which is a beautiful thing. And so if you really want to uh, help us out, you know, so that we can continue to bring this important radio outreach to you, you can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. And by the way, the crew is $6.95 a month. That's like nothing. And, uh, and uh, of course, if you'd like to contribute to the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? You can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there again, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen.